you about professional design and review policy and the defenses around that, uh, the legal structure, the risks, and the advice that uh, you will have with you today. Um, Jeff has been practicing law for, for a long time. I've known him since I started this game, and we've been going for about 25 years. Jeff's a uh, civil litigator. He's been doing a lot of work for us over the years. Um, and he handles all matter of uh, defense files for us. Um, and uh, I've worked with him from the beginning, as I said, and uh, his expertise is all over the map. And he's done a lot of work for us in building inspection cases ranging from claims pertaining to small dwellings to large complex multifamily dwellings and commercial buildings. Jeff lives in Victoria and practices with local government law firm. Stuart McDonald Stewart. And uh, with that, I'll take you through some housekeeping stuff. Uh, if you have any technical difficulties during the session, um, just like your Windows uh, solution, the best thing to do is log out, log back in, and hopefully that solves it. Um, and excuse me, I'm reading these instructions to my right here, so I'm not looking at the screen. but. Um, you may need to use your phone to access webinars if, if you're having difficulty with the browser. Um, and if that doesn't resolve your problems, then just email Heidi. Uh, Heidi's at H-S-C-R-I-B-N-E-R, Heidi Scribner at M-I-A-B-C.org. And feel free to ask questions during the presentation using the chat. Um, We'll save those up to the end, and uh, toward the end, when Jeff's finished his presentation, I'll curate those questions and feed them back to Jeff so he can provide you with some distinguished answers. Um, and please keep your audio and video off, uh, unless instructed uh, otherwise. Um, and I guess we'll, uh, we'll start into it now, and uh, I'll stop sharing my screen so Jeff can take over. Okay, I'll just get my screen up here. All right. <clears throat> thanks, everybody. Thanks for that introduction, David. Um, and thanks, everybody, for taking some of your time with me this morning to hear about this important topic. Um, Heidi sent me the, uh, <clears throat> the registration list yesterday. And it was an impressive collection of pretty much the, uh, the brain trust of the entire planning and building inspection sectors for the province. Lots of familiar faces. And uh, so welcome to everyone I know and welcome to everyone I haven't met yet. Uh, I hope this is uh, a useful uh, bit of time that you're going to spend uh, this morning. I'm going to do 45 minutes of presentation. Uh, that'll take us to about 10.45 closer to 40 minutes because I want to leave time for questions. We'll have 15 minutes for sure for questions. I can stick around to as late as 11.30 if need be, if, if there are more questions or discussion. Uh, I gave a version of this, which is quite similar, uh, version of this presentation, which is quite similar at the uh, BOABC conference in May in person to a small group. Um, structure is pretty similar. Uh, content may be a little different today and uh, there's always different questions. As Dave said, I'm going to go through the legal structure 
of the professional design and review policy, how it lands in the law, and how it sort of snaps into the law of negligence. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that, but I'm going to give you some context. Uh, I'm going to identify some risks for you and give you some advice. The advice that I'm going to give you is some of the advice that I've been giving for, for a long time, some of the more important advice that I give, but there's tons and tons that can be said about this. Um, one thing that is always amazing in these presentations is to hear the experience and questions of experienced building inspectors and uh, folks who work in planning departments who always have interesting questions. So I'm looking forward to that part of the session and don't hesitate to type in your question. Um, Dave is going to have a look at them uh, and then sort of fire some out uh, when we get to about 1045 or so. So here we go. I'm going to start off with a story about a case called Parsons and Finch, which is well known to the MIABC because the MIABC uh, ran that case on behalf of its member of the city of Richmond in the 1990s. Um, it's known to a lot of you, it's known to me and lawyers who practice in the area that I practice in, which is litigation for local governments because it is the leading case, it's a leading case on policy defenses as well as importantly, uh, professional design and review. I'm not going to do the story of this case justice. Uh, uh, I'm going to give an abbreviated version. Basically, what happened was uh, folks by the name of Don and Linda Parsons in 1993 applied to Richmond for a building permit. They owned a piece of property. There's a nice Google shot of it. Um, it was it was uh, undeveloped at the time. Applied for a building permit. Got a building permit. Um, the city in 1992, so a year before, had adopted a building bylaw which indicating that the city could rely on letters of assurance uh, to satisfy the requirement uh, relating to certain aspects of the uh, compliance with the building code. This is, as we know, the heart of the professional design and review approach to building permit administration. So these provisions had been uh, adopted by Richmond the year before the Parsons applied for the building permit. Parsons applied for the building permit, the application ended up in the hands of the city engineer, who was a professional engineer, but he wasn't a geotech. Uh, the city engineer directed that a, a geotech report be obtained and uh, provided it to the city. And that was done by uh, Parsons. They hired a, an engineer named Trevor Finch, who provided a report. Um, the story goes on, the building permits issued, the house is built. Uh, about five years later in 1998, the uh, Parsons noticed a significant differential settlement in their structure. One side of it was about 18 inches lower uh, than the other side. Uh, they started a lawsuit. They did some work as well. They found out that the uh, the, the house had been built on uh, soils that were not suitable for, for bearing the structure. They started a lawsuit, sued the city, sued Mr. Finch. Along the course of the lawsuit, Mr. Finch passed away, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it was just the city who defended the lawsuit and brought an application to the court to have the lawsuit dismissed. Uh, there was some procedural wrangling. Um, ultimately, the city was successful in having the case dismissed, and that decision was appealed to the Court of Appeal. Uh, and there's the uh, sort of the front page of the court's decision. And what the court found in that case, having looked at what the city did, having looked at the bylaw provisions that had been adopted, the process that had been followed, uh, 
they they considered the position of the city and they cons- they considered the position of the the parsons as well who said the city had a you know an overarching duty to inspect that property uh, you know, couldn't rely on mr finch had a duty to inspect it on their own they were aware of the uh, problematic conditions of soils in the area and uh, had an obligation to do more than simply rely on that report. And this is, importantly for us, this is what the court said. So this is the BC Court of Appeal, highest court in this province. Uh, and the judge who was writing for the majority or for the, for the court, pardon me, said, in my view, the decision of the city to utilize a professional design was a true policy decision because utilization of the professional design scheme constituted a true policy decision. The city is therefore immune negligence liability in failing to inspect the soils preparation that's huge uh immune from negligence uh that is an uh, an incredibly powerful decision for us and and an incredibly powerful tool in law because it allows effectively uh, local governments and, and building officials within local governments to rely on the professional opinions and assurances of registered professionals who are hired by uh, building permit applicants and rely on those to conclude that, uh, that, that, a, that a building was constructed in accordance with the BC Building Code. And that's really what's at the heart of this defense and, and the, the, the policy approach. So this is a quick overview here and I'm going to break this down and get into it more as we go. So it is a uh, what we call a policy decision of a local government. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, But generally there are certain decisions which local governments can make uh, that they are entitled to make that are immune from review by the court. I'll give you another example. Uh, In Salmon Arm or in Revelstoke, for example, which gets a lot of snow, the councils in those communities are entitled to make a policy decision about how they remove snow, how much they remove snow they remove, what they do with the snow, how often they do it, and what, what triggers that. Uh, and the reason for that is because these are financial decisions uh, that impact uh, you know, the tax base, how much is spent, how much they have to collect. And, and what the courts, the view that courts take of these types of decisions when they're properly made is that these are governmental decisions. These are decisions on how these local governments and communities organize themselves and the priorities they make. And we as a court are not gonna touch those decisions. So similarly, in the case of reliance on professional design and review, the court here in this Parsons case, Parsons case, which I just showed you, acknowledged that and said that is a type of governmental decision that uh, local governments are entitled to make. And some of the reasons for that is local governments uh, are entitled to make the decision not to hire and retain their own geotechnical engineers to go out and study these properties. And and they're they're entitled to put that expense and the risk that comes along with it over to owners. And that's uh, the third point, the the point, the third bullet that I show there, that that this policy transfers risk uh, from local governments to owners. And that's something that we're all, always interested in. Uh, local governments uh, are complex, have complex duties, operate under complex statutory regimes. But to the extent possible, when citizens, people, investors, developers want things from us, uh, 
it is more beneficial to have them take on the risk rather than the local government take on the risk. So that's part of the reason for this. Um, and finally, um, what I want to flag on the, on the bottom bullet is it is a reliance-based defense. We're going to spend some time on this when we talk about advice, but it requires sole reliance on the professional assurances that are given to the local government. So to foreshadow this a little bit, if we say on one hand, we're placing sole reliance on the uh, opinion of a structural engineer or on a geotechnical engineer, and on the other hand, we go out and do a bunch of inspections and draw our own conclusions and write those conclusions down, uh, then it is really going to challenge the conclusion that we indeed, whether or not we indeed place sole reliance on the professional assurance uh, of a registered professional. And as I say, said, we will come back to that for sure. I'm going to quickly show you, really quickly show you the structure of the tort of negligence, just so you have, so you have an idea of how this fits in. Negligence is actually quite a complicated analysis. Uh, it's not as simple as saying, look, that was negligent. You missed that, that was negligent. The court requires us to go through a number of steps to determine whether the law of negligence even applies and whether a certain act or omission uh, was actually negligent. And uh, the starting point is a question that the court asks, which is whether or not, in our case, the local government owes a duty of care to an owner of property, to an owner builder, to a subsequent purchaser of property, people who could be impacted by uh, an unsatisfactory building inspection. So the duty of care uh, generally arises in law when it's foreseeable that if, in our case, we don't do our job right, somebody can suffer a loss. And secondly, it arises where there's a, a sufficient degree of proximity or closeness between the parties for the courts to recognize that, in our case, a local government has a duty of care to look out for the economic interests of somebody else. There's not a lot of what we call private law duties of care that are owed by local governments, but this is one of them. And I'm going to take you in a little bit to the case in the, from 1984 that established this. And, and a lot of you will know a little bit about that case. Uh, and just to follow up on my last point, a few examples of where local governments owe private law duty of cares in addition to building inspection are negligent misrepresentation, safety of roads and sidewalks, so things that you're familiar with. The next thing that a party seeking to establish negligence has to prove is that the local government uh, breached the so-called standard of care. So the idea is you owe a duty to take care of somebody else. The question, the next question for the court is, okay, you owe a duty, but what's the standard that you have to meet to have met the requirements of that duty? Um, in a, in a non-professional uh, design and review program, so a standard, uh, you know, simple building, uh, uh, staggered building inspections, the standard of care that applies to building inspectors, we know from a 1989 case uh, that came out of Vernon actually, uh, is uh, that for building inspection, uh, inspectors are obliged to discover defects as could reasonably uh, be expected to have detected and have ordered remedy. So it's a, it's a standard of reasonableness, not perfection in the case of uh, standard building inspection. The next requirement is the party must have suffered damages. So even if there's a duty owed, even if you didn't do a good job on standard of care, unless the party suffered damages, you don't get any further in the uh, in the analysis. Um, and then finally, 
the the loss has to have been caused by the act, omission, or fault, or, or the party that uh, didn't meet the standard of care. And I'll give you an example on this. There's a case out of New Brunswick from 20 years ago or more, where uh, the the builder actually basically defrauded the building inspector and made it look like certain work had been done, um, but hadn't done that work. And so, uh, yeah, there was a duty of care. There was a standard of care that needed to be met, but the court found this loss was not caused by the building inspectors. This cause, this loss was caused by this this builder who tried to fraudulently make it look like the construction had been done properly when it hadn't. So that's the structure. This is, I just told you in about six minutes what gets packed into the first you know, year of law school in a torts class. And so um, it's, it's only intended to be a quick overview because I really want to get to the heart of uh, what we want to talk about today. So I told you I would tell you the case where, uh, which gave rise to local governments owing a duty of care uh, as it relates to building inspection. And here it is, Camelson-Nielsen, which was a 1984 decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, I wish I had time to tell you the full tale of this one because it's pretty entertaining. But the, and, and I'm pretty sure this is the house. I took this from Google Street Views. I'm pretty sure it's the house. Uh, notably, it's still standing. Um, the key element of all of this, which you can kind of relax about looking ahead, is at the time, the 1970 building bylaw for the city of Kamloops inclu included a provision that I've super duper highlighted here. The building inspector shall enforce the provisions of this bylaw. And backing up, it's, you know, you, you, before you issue an occupancy permit, everything has to comply with the bylaw. Uh, you uh, you don't get to occupy without an occupancy permit. And as I say, the last one is you must enforce the provision of the bylaw. And what happened in this case is the city of Camelos did not, they, they knew about a defect, they did not enforce the provisions of the bylaw, and they were aware that the building was being occupied. It's recorded in Canada. Court of Canada said, you owe a duty of care and you breach the duty of care, you are liable to the current owner for the cost, in this case, of fixing foundations. In that case, though, in that um, Kamloops case, the court also said there will be certain decisions that uh, a government makes which will essentially, the word they use is negative, which is spelled like negative. It took me years to figure out that how you pronounce it in that context is negative. Anyway, it eradicates the duty of care. And these are these so-called policy decisions. And so a policy decision can eliminate the duty of care. In other words, so even in a normal situation, if you would owe a duty of care to an owner as it relates to building inspection, if you've adopted a policy, and in this case, it's the professional design and review policy, the idea that you're going to rely on the professional assurances of a registered professional, if you adopt that policy, it can negative or eradicate the duty of care. And that's what happened in Parsons case. This was another case. This was sort of uh, this a highway near Port Alberni. It was a highway case, but this is what the court said. A true policy decision by a governmental body is not subject to review by the courts. Although there may be tort liability, so negligence liability in this case, for the negligent implementation of a policy. And this is called the operational aspect of a policy. We're going to come to this, but the idea is if you make a policy decision, which is a true policy decision, and you stick to your policy, you may be immune from tort liability. But if you break your own policy, um, then you may be subject to 
regular negligence analysis. And I'm going to foreshadow an example, the key example here, and I'm going to come back to it. So say you implement professional design and review policy through your bylaw. And in, in the case of a particular building permit, you say, this is the way we're going. We need the BCBC letters of assurance. Um, but then before you close your file, before you issue your occupancy, you don't actually collect all of those letters of assurance. And so you go ahead and issue your occupancy without having all of those letters of assurance. You've still got a good policy. You've still got a lawful policy, but what you did is you didn't follow your policy. If you don't follow your policy, you're out of luck. You're potentially going to be negligent. So critically for us, and a big part of the advice today is follow your policy. If you've got this superpower that the court has given you, get out of jail free card in a way, but you got to follow your policy. And I'm going to give you a bit of advice about um, some best practices that I've seen to help organize yourselves to make sure that you are following your policy. So, um, true policy decisions can negate a duty of care and allow local governments to set their own standards. And your policy in all of your cases is uh, contained in your building bylaw. Sometimes local governments will adopt a you know, snow removal policy or a sidewalk inspection policy. In this case, though, your bylaw is your policy. This is a case, um, this is a quote from a case that we refer to commonly as the River West case because that was the name of or the informal name of the condo building uh, in Vancouver on the, no, in Delta, pardon me, on the banks of the, uh, notoriously in Delta, on the banks of the Fraser. Um, I'm going to come back to this case at the end of the presentation, but this is what uh, the court said about the professional design and review policy. So legislative, the legislative scheme allows the district of Delta in this case can largely avoid the cost of enforcement and supplement its resources through the reliance on professional certification. Professional involvement is no absolute guarantee of a well-constructed building as the structural failures of these buildings will attest, but it is a method that is provided for use by municipality in supplementing a lack of expertise and resources in satisfying its responsibility under the provincial code. We've talked about most of this, but one of the things in this quote that I want to pull out is um, just like anything, there's no guarantee that the opinion and professional assurance of a registered professional is going to be absolutely accurate and perfect. Um, but that's not part of the test. The test is, you know, was, was this a qualified professional and did you place appropriate reliance? Did you place reliance on the the professional assurance pursuant to your policy. That's the test for the local government. It's not whether the registered professional was right or wrong. It's whether you followed your policy and you had that policy in the first place. This um, this has been tested uh, by Parsons and Finch, which I've already told you about. Um, there's another case here uh, from Ontario from 1998 where uh, uh, local government conducted only a cursory review of structural plans that had been stamped by a professional engineer. That was its standard policy contained in its building bylaw. And the court in Ontario said, yeah, that's a policy defense. That's a full policy defense. I will tell you that we don't run a ton of these cases because the law is so good. Um, by and large, we just, we just, if we have a solid policy defense in terms of um, not only the, the decision to implement it having been made, but good documents to back it up. We basically, not basically, we, we largely get out of these cases with uh, plaintiffs withdrawing their cases against um, 
the members, and, and Dave and I have uh, worked together on a number of these files where we've been successful. I've mentioned this earlier, if you fail to follow your policy, uh, you can end up having your case and your conduct being determined by the court on the basis of whether or not the requirements of the building code have been met. So the example again is you don't collect all the letters of assurance, but, but notwithstanding that you issue uh, the occupancy permit. If, if you do that and there's uh, uh, code deficiencies, you could be on the hook for that. Uh, Really briefly, this is where it pops up in your world. There's there's two places where where the, uh, the professional design and review program pop up uh, in a category of discretionary authority and then in a category of mandatory requirements. So discretionary is if, if you have some version of the MIABC core bylaw, you'll see it as a discretionary authority to require it for site conditions, structural, electrical, mechanical, fire suppression uh, for certain building code uh, classifications and precise servicing. And then uh, on a mandatory side, uh, in most of your bylaws, uh, certain retaining structures over four feet in height or complex buildings. I've already covered this. Basically, um, the rationale and objective of policy is uh, brings expertise to complex issues for best outcomes in terms of good building. And secondly, transfers risk from your local government over to the owners and the registered professionals and their insurers. Now, I'm gonna get into a little bit of, I guess this is sort of advice, but I wanted to highlight some things that are probably gonna show up uh, in your bylaw. This is, these are excerpts out of Canlib's bylaw and uh, you'll have similar stuff in your own, I expect. Uh, be aware of the shalls and the maze in your bylaw. Shall is mandatory. Uh, may is permissive. So if it says shall or must, you have to do it. Um, in this case, this provision says building permit issued uh, shall include notice to the owner that building permit is issued in reliance on certification of registered professionals. Um, if you're going to do this, you have to include this in the BP. And hence me highlighting shall include. Uh, at point number two there, my preference, if possible, is to expressly list um, the registered professionals that you are relying upon. I know that this creates complexities. I know that uh, uh, owner builders will change registered professionals uh, mid-course sometimes, um, uh, but I'll tell you the perspective that I'm coming at this from is, is sort of one voice in this whole discussion. And my voice is protect your butts when you guys get sued. And I'll tell you, it's awesome when uh, I'm defending one of these cases and I get the, the building permit not only includes a, an express statement of reliance on registered professionals, but has a list. And then goody, goody, I have the whole set of uh, letters of insurance that correspond to that. That's solid gold for me. But I'm, I'm telling you right now, I know that that creates some complexity for you. Next vision is um, uh, city will rely solely on field reviews undertaking by the registered professionals and the letters of assurance. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but to hit this with you guys, and uh, again, is the concept of sole reliance. If, if, you, if an element of construction, you know, say it's a complex building, say it's structural, say it's whatever, uh, mechanical or fire suppression, um, if that's being handled by registered professionals pursuant to letters of assurance, 
if you are out there conducting inspections of those things, i.e. not just monitoring, having a look and see how things are progressing, but actual inspections and creating inspection certificates, the concept of placing sole reliance on uh, a letter of assurance and at the same time having conduct, uh, conducted an inspection and, and having made conclusions pursuant to that inspection are wholly incompatible. Um, it really hamstrings my ability to defend you on the basis of this policy defense. What I'm telling you now is nothing you knew. You've been hearing this uh, at least since 2002 and the uh, original uh, core building bylaw that the MIA put out. Uh, but, I, but today is about reinforcing and that's something that I really want to reinforce for you. Um, 1602 from Kamloops bylaw, building official may attend at the, the site. Um, I hate monitoring, to be honest with you. I really do. And I've had so many discussions with building officials about this. I get it. I, I mean, you're building officials. You want to see the building. You are trained and tuned to inspect. I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying this. Um, but it just, it, it often creates problems. Um, the, if, if, if you're going to monitor, and I, and I understand the reason for monitoring, the local government, especially in a significant project, is want to see how things are progressing, make sure it's moving along. Um, for heaven's sake, make sure you don't take notes on a building inspection record. I hope you have something called a monitoring something, um, not building inspection. And uh, there's a whole element of walks like a duck, talks like a duck must be a duck to this. And the further away you can get from the duck of building inspection, uh, the better. And as I say in my last point, your lawyers will be happier uh, if your inspectors do not monitor these elements of construction. Uh, so anyway, take, take that for what it's worth. Again, I'm coming from the perspective of defending you in lawsuits and keeping you out of lawsuits. And uh, I've seen, and, and so take, take it from that perspective only, but I'll tell you that I've seen multiple instances where even with something called uh, a, a monitoring notice, uh, that gets in the hands of uh, a lawyer who's acting for a builder who you know, may have some familiarity with building and construction cases, but not a deep, deep understanding. They look at that thing and they think, this is an inspection. How can you say you're relying? You're out there conducting inspections. And most of the time, we're able to prevail. We're able to show them you know, the section 1602 or its equivalent and explain to them uh, uh, what has happened here. But they're suspicious. They don't want to give up a case if they think it's a good case, and sometimes it takes a while to convince them. Um, briefly wanted to mention the uh, first cousin to all of this, which is Section 56 sub 2 of the Community Charter, um, which allows uh, building officials to require in certain instances uh, that a report be provided. Uh, again, in that instance, we want to make sure that uh, if you're going to utilize that provision, uh, uh, that it be sole reliance, that you're not out there drawing your own conclusion. So, uh, about 10 minutes left. Here is some advice relating to some typical scenarios. In the context of this program, also professional uh, review program, uh, I've, I've hit it in a red here, bold red. The role of the building official is primarily that of an administrator. And by administrator, let's be clear, um, moving paper around. That is your primary role. Um, collection of records, uh, a limited review of those records to ensure that the subject uh, matter is 
what it should be, uh, that it's been certified, that it's signed and sealed. Uh, what do I mean by well, number three? Occupancy requires uh, policy compliance. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, finally, that you have all the records that, as, as the administrator, uh, you have all the records, you've received all the records that are required in order for you to then move to the stage official. No, that's uh, here's a problem that comes up you're in a month you're in a you're there for a monitoring visit and you see a deficiency and I, I expect all of you at various times have had conversations about this scenario have either heard from me or others sought advice and have uh, a program for dealing with it um, but to review if you're there and you know, for example, you look and you see the, the fire separations that have not been properly built uh, and the construction's at a point where if it was going to happen, it should have happened by now, uh, then the core advice that I, that I would give you is those observations, even though you're not inspecting, you've seen them with your eyes, they need to be specifically resolved through written feedback, professional assurance from the registered professional. Um, it's a complex building. You can go to the coordinating registered professional. If it's just uh, a simple building with one or two registered professionals involved, you can go directly to them. But you need to have that issue resolved in writing in your file before you issue a, an occupancy permit. That's something that I've seen done and seen done well is the creation of a deficiencies list that comes up uh, as the product of monitoring or sort of general awareness by city staff by some other means on a, on a complicated project. Um, there's a bit of a double-edged sword anytime you create a document when you, when you uh, or a form, uh, if, you, if you are dutiful about filling it out and consistent, it's, it's, it's great, but it can come back and bite you if you don't fill it out completely. So for example, the types of deficiency lists I have seen are listing the deficiencies having records as to when those were um, communicated to the registered professional and then having uh, records, having a, a column that shows when um, they were positively resolved through communications from the registered professional. And of course, all of those documents would be kept elsewhere. But the deficiency list is something that uh, your the, the building official who's responsible for considering whether an occupancy permit uh, should be issued will look at will have that deficiency list and is not going to issue an occupancy permit until each one of those rows is satisfactorily completed and of course the risk is if you don't do it uh as i say in my bullet number four there that could be a real smoking gun piece of evidence it's sort of like cringe time when you see those um creates problems for us but it is a powerful tool if you if you stick with it Here's another problem. Um, not all registered professionals do a good job. This comes up for me at least once or twice a year. Uh, I get contacted by a local government who wants to talk about this. Uh, it's a little bit off topic for this, but it's related enough that we should spend a second talking about it. Uh, there are solutions to this. Uh, EGBC is much more uh, responsive than it was, say, 10 or 15 years ago in its previous incarnation. Uh, and uh, uh, the feedback I'm getting is contacting EGBC is uh, people are getting positive results of that. Uh, another option is to 
uh, you know, when you get a when you get a report that's to, you look at it and you can't help but notice it's just it's just wrong. It's bad. They're referring to the wrong sections of the code. They've misunderstood something completely. What the heck do you do with this? Uh, you can go back and require the builder or developer to obtain uh, a peer review of the new of the report or a new report. Um, you don't have specific statutory or bylaw authority to do that. Um, this is a bit of a longer discussion, but the way this shakes out is 99 times out of 100, if you make that request and you explain it and you apply that little bit of pressure, um, it will work out for you. Uh, we also have a good case from the Court of Appeal in 2018 out of Nanaimo, which uh, I think I saw uh, Darcy uh, uh, registered here would know more about this case, uh, Darcy from Nanaimo. Uh, but it essentially allows uh, local governments to oblige updated report or, or uh, a report that had been used in a different context than building uh, that's presented for building purposes. Uh, the case allows for the local government to ask for a new report. That's an important decision uh, where the court uh, really focuses in on the role of these reports and the important linkage to health and safety. Uh, another point of advice, uh, record keeping. Um, this is a little clip of uh, a, a form uh, from a file that I had a number of years ago. Uh, it's from the mid-90s, I think, or late 90s. Um, and I've seen lots of different uh, varieties of these, but the idea is uh, this local government made the decision to create this form to create uh, an organized system for uh, recording uh, submissions that have been received from registered professionals. Um, and again, we've got the double-edged sword part about it. It's great. It's an amazing piece of evidence. Um, but they can come back and bite you if you don't complete it. In this case, this was uh, a terrific evidence package from this MABC member. Uh, it came as a single PDF. This document was on top, and behind it was a well-organized collection of all of the letters of assurance. It was a joy to review. And uh, in that case, uh, in that case, we were able to, to get out of that case for nothing. Uh, we were able to pre present an incredibly compelling uh, policy defense and the plaintiffs let us out. Quick piece of advice on retaining structures. Um, my advice is, I mean, these, these are entirely registered professional designed, uh, construction reviewed, signed off, and then uh, an approved final uh, permit type of scenario. Uh, my advice is don't expect the progress of construction on these. I have seen numerous, I've had numerous retaining wall cases, and uh, in, in every instance where the inspector has gone out to have a look, it creates an opportunity for the party that's suing to say, ah, they should have seen this. They should have seen that there was insufficient uh, drainage. They should have seen that the lock blocks were installed upside down. Uh, actually had one of those cases. Um, so if you can stay away, um, stay away. I understand that you're gonna have to do a final site visit and it's been explained to me in a couple of cases that this is, there's a, there's a sort of a practical necessity of this. We wanna close our file. We, we wanna lay eyes on this thing to see if it's actually been built. Um, it would be helpful if, understanding you need to do that, and if you do that, it would be helpful if in your final inspection form, 
if that's what you use, you, you basically indicate that, uh, you know, you, you've just, you attended at the site to confirm that the wall was built and, and that you've not inspected it and you've placed sole reliance on the registered professional uh, assurances. Um, another point here, a bit of a quirk that still shows up in some, some bylaws, um, you shouldn't be using BCBC letters of assurance uh, for stand-alone re retaining structures uh, because it's been, it's been explained to me the code uh, does not apply to stand-alone retaining structures, only to retaining structures that are part of a building or other type of structure. So I think most local governments have caught on to this and so what you use instead is a is, is just letters um, uh, stating, you know, first of all, that uh, the design, letter from the registered professional stating the design that's attached is suitable and meets all proper engineering standards. And then uh, uh, a similar letter at the end saying that the retaining structure was built in accordance with the designs. Um, I think this is close to my last piece of advice, which is. As I mentioned at near the outset, your building bylaw is your policy decision as it relates to professional, the, the scope of the inspections you do and your professional design and review policy. Here's the advice. Do not internally adopt a policy, even if it goes all the way up to council or the board, in which your you have a policy which requires something less than what your building bylaw requires. And this is the infamous case of Delta uh, and River West. Here's a picture of the River West uh, condo, formerly Leaky Condo. And what happened in that case was um, Delta had a building bylaw, which uh, indicated that it was enforcing the entire scope of the BC Building Code and had an internal policy uh, that it wasn't going to inspect certain elements uh, of construction, including rooms, which of course are covered by the building code. And contrary to their own bylaw, they made an internal, internal policy decision that they weren't going to inspect those. Uh, and of course, that's where the problem, or one of the problems was in this building. And the court came back and uh, said this, the evidence here is Delta made a policy decision to administer and enforce the code uh, through the process of permit approval and subsequent inspection. Administration of these processes through the building department began implementation at the operational level. As I noted earlier, the director acknowledged that the bylaw adopted enforcement of the whole code. It was at the departmental level that the decision was made not to deal with certain provisions. And the court said, you don't get to do that. The bylaw is your policy decision. You don't get to adopt uh, a lesser policy to exclude yourself from uh, elements of your bylaw. And uh, in that case, uh, infamously, Delta was found to be uh, responsible and it was a case where there was no one left the developer was gone bankrupt uh, the builder had settled uh, settled out and so it was delta left with something like three million dollar judgment on this case so that's the lesson to be learned on that one final slide um summing up some of my key advice before granting uh occupancy uh make sure you have uh all relevant aspects of construction uh, covered by letters of assurances and no strikeouts. And when I say strikeouts uh, in the letters of assurance with the itemized element, um, sometimes there's more, more than one geotech, make sure those dovetail together perfectly. So all of the required items have been covered by somebody 
And that's, that's nitpicky, nuanced work that your person who's assigned to review the file before an occupancy permit recommendation is made needs to do. Make sure those fit together. Uh, and of course, the basic number two, all letters of assurance have been received. And then if you do use a checklist for your letters of assurance, or you do use a checklist for your deficiency, that person should be totally satisfied that all of those, that the form is filled out and all of the documents that are reflected in the form show up in your collection of documents. Um, that's just safe practice. It's not fun, it's it's pushed paper, uh, but it pays massive dividends uh, when you get sued. And then folks like Dave and I have to come in and uh, try and figure out how to do So that is my presentation and I am happy now to take questions. Stop sharing. Okay, uh, thanks, Jeff. That was fantastic. Um, I'm going to share my screen because we do have a few questions. Um, and just bear with me here. Make sure I share the right screen. Um, we have some housekeeping notes here, but I'm going to drag this over here. I've copied some of the questions we've had. Um, did you see those on the screen, Jeff? Not yet. Oh, I didn't say share. That's fine. Can we see them now? Yes. Okay, so these are the questions we've gotten so far. Um, I'm just scrolling down to see if we've got more. Uh, no, that's uh, that's what we have for now, so maybe we can uh, step through these. Uh, they're probably a small font for some of you to read, but uh, why don't we start with the first one about do we have the requirements in the building bylaw for the geotechnical engineer because of the building act? I'm not sure if I understand the exact angle on this, but I can't think of any reason why you would exclude those uh, uh, from your bylaw. Uh, it's your bylaws is where your policy decision lives and it's what the court is going to want to look at, uh, going to want to see in terms of your purported reliance on these. So I would caution against uh, removing those from your bylaw if they're already in there. Um, and that may be something that some further advice can be given. Right, and um, I, I'm not sure either what the group is getting at, but in terms of uh, some of the bylaws I've seen do have a sort of an automatic requirement for a geotechnical engineer and that's, that doesn't stem from the building act. It might even be uh, offside of the building act, but uh, it depends on how it's worded, which situations those are. But uh, uh, if the crew can send in a clarification, we can maybe get to that. But in the meantime, why don't we jump down to the next one? So if the city becomes aware of a deficiency on something that is covered within the scope of the engineer's work, how can the deficiency be brought to the attention of the engineer without the city stepping outside the sole reliance parameters? Uh, we still need to bring the deficiency to the attention of the registered or to the engineer, but we don't want to drop the professional uh, reliance protection. That's a great question. Um, and uh, you know how you communicate it can be varied. Um, but as an example, it could be on such and such date, we were, uh, uh, I, I did a, a monitoring visit of the site. Uh, I noticed in on the third floor, 
that uh, fireproofing uh, had not been installed and uh, it occurred to me that this may possibly have been overlooked by the builder. Um, please advise on this and confirm that, uh, that uh, this issue has been addressed to your satisfaction. And so we push it back to the registered professional. Um, the risk, if you don't do that, is you've seen something and you haven't said anything about it in an implication letter that you saw something and you didn't do anything, then that's a great avenue for you to be uh, found negligent. Uh, but what you want to do is, is in our contrast here in, the, in this response, is instead of saying, uh, hey, registered professional, here's the steps that need to be taken, you don't do that. You say to them, tell me how this is uh, confirmed for me that this has been addressed to your satisfaction. So you're, you're, you're putting it onto them. Uh, Ken asks the question, if local governments moving to digital online application reviews, should they get legal vetting to ensure they're set up to properly ensure processing inspections and record keeping? Um, you know, it, it may not be a bad idea. Um, it's, it's not really a legal question. It's more of a practical question. Um, but the experience that someone like myself would have with this is experience that's come from defending dozens of these cases. And, uh, and also having the perspective of, look, this is what I'm going to need to prove if, if this thing ever goes to court. So ensuring that you have a fully rationalized system that, that uh, captures everything that needs to be captured, doesn't have any holes, if you want to run that by um, legal counsel who has experience in this area. I don't, I don't think that's a bad idea. Yeah, it probably wouldn't take that long. From Dan Milburn, how do you deal with rich professional attempting to limit their liability with various qualifiers or caveats in their reports and letters? Uh, I think I would need to see the examples, but um, in these kinds of, where I, where I go with these kinds of situations is to talk about leverage. Um, and uh, you've got something that the applicant wants, and that is the ability to approve the construction. And uh, if they've got a registered professional who's trying to wiggle out of some scope of responsibility and you know, putting pressure on you uh, to, to that extent, um, I would say local governments ought not to be in the business of doing people favors when those favors result in local governments taking on a bunch of risk for nothing. So I would say push back and say, you know, it would depend on the relationship and the circumstance and the importance, but it could go as far as some form of communicating. If, if you want this to get approved, this is what needs to happen. Uh, are letters of assurance a commitment to the local authority? How do they apply to a professional? Is their contract with the owner? Does Reg Professional have an obligation to local authority even if they end their contract? I've never had to, I've, I've encountered that situation. It's always been resolved somehow. And I've never had to look at specifically whether a local government could enforce an obligation. I don't, uh, it, I don't think of it as a commitment to the local government. Uh, they are, registered professionals are retained by, you know, the, the, applicant or the owner or the builder in that context and so they have a contractual relationship with the party that they contract with the uh what they are providing to the local government is an assurance 
uh, and it's a specific insurance assurance relating to a specific aspect of design and construction and for the specific purpose of allowing the local government to properly exercise its authority to approve construction. So as an example, I've had cases where uh, a registered professional has just disappeared and so we basically work, we've had local government work with the owner to say, you know, I think in this case it was an architect, the one I'm thinking of, and it was basically get the original drawings uh, that have been approved to the architect. Um, in this case, the owner wanted to make a change. We need new drawings for the change, uh, it, it, or it could just be, um, you know, if, if there's a new architect involved at the field review stage, um, we want to make sure and, and make it clear that the architect is signing off on the construction having been uh, completed in compliance with the originally uh, approved design. So there can be different scenarios there. Let's see what's next. Hey, thank you, Jeff. Our building administration clerical staff allowed to use building and plumbing permits on behalf of the building. official I'm not sure what that means use maybe Jay if you can shoot uh, Dave just a little explanation a little more explanation of what you mean by oh, oh issue I'm sorry I read it wrong it's small font um, yeah the clerical, the clerical staff issuing uh, building and plumbing permit I do. I mean, I think that um, what your bylaw is probably going to say is the building official may issue building permit, and you're probably going to have a definition in your bylaw that says who a building official is. It's probably going to be somebody who was appointed by council as a building official. So, um, for me, like a lot of the stuff, it's a connect the dot exercise. So we'd have to look at your bylaw and. Uh, see who is entitled to issue these documents and uh, if these if the people who are issuing them have to hold an office such as a building official whether they qualify as that i think that that would be my approach to solving this uh, well just to, um, to touch on that i know i said christine webb at the building uh, safety uh, branch there um, back when this is all new being debated over the building act and with, i mean with the new requirements that building officials have to have their qualifications um she was of the view that anytime you're doing work as a building official uh you have to be certified to that level and when i talked to her about uh review plan review um she said well you know you have to have the capabilities that are uh, commensurate with that level of plan that we're reviewing, uh, whether it's complex or simple and whatnot. Uh, we had a bit of a debate over that, but she seemed to think that you can't sort of approve something without considering it, and you can't consider it unless you qualify. And, and I just throw that out there to you. Uh, with, like if a building department started getting clerical and stuff and issued these permits, would that not be a violation of the building? I was kind of thinking of a scenario where it's a... Uh, a signing a building permit 
um, just basically signing a building permit. So it's pretty standard requirements that have been administered. Um, we're relying on professional uh, assurances of registered professionals. Here's the list. Uh, we've given you a discount in your building fee, this kind of thing. Who can sign that? If that's the question of who can sign that and issue that, as opposed to the approval, which Dave is talking about, um, my question, my, my analysis would be to look at your building bylaw to, to see who's, who's entitled to that. Question from Steve from the Nanaimo, the section on a schedule that was not contemplated. Part of a project, main professional, oops, just disappeared. Oh, there it is. Hey, main professional, strike it out. Uh, yeah, I've, I've always taken the view that, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I've seen cases where there's certain aspects of uh, a section on a schedule is just clearly not applicable to a project and I've seen it struck out and I've never given it a second thought having drawn that conclusion. Um, but that's a good question, Steve. Um, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. It's never been something that I've, that I've looked at beyond that. Uh, can you speak to the scope of work in evaluating building? applications thinking of unpermitted work outside the scope of work and to what degree municipality needs to require rectification of that unpermitted work um, th this comes up uh, quite often and if I'm understanding this correctly uh, so a project is approved uh, then you get out there and they've built something different uh, pretty much all of your bylaws are going to require that the building official approves any variation to the work uh, that was that, that is set out in the approved plans. And uh, the feedback that I've had from building inspectors on this is that there's a cutoff point uh, where a minor variation from the approved plans turns into a major change, such as to trigger uh, the requirement of a new building permit or an amended building permit and that's something you're going to have to uh, apply your judgment to but in any event any variations to the work um, especially those which which have some impact on health and safety should be identified and specifically addressed uh, by the by the authority Rob Smales asks, will it affect your immunity if you do not reduce the permit fees when relying on a registered professional? Great question, Rob. And perhaps somewhat surprisingly, the answer is no. Um, there is a case on this and the court found that uh, uh, it was a case where somebody was purporting to rely on a registered professional, uh, hadn't reduced the fees. The, uh, the owner got excited, thought that, that would knock out the policy defense and the court came back and said, no, it's a, you're entitled to a reduction in your fees, but it doesn't uh, doesn't do anything to the reliance that occurred. So good good outcome there. Good question. Uh, Brett asks if a municipality is doing true compliance monitoring of complex buildings. Do you have any recommendations for generic wording after the monitoring that does not look like inspection results? Um, If, so if you if you go out and for a monitoring visit, um, and there's nothing noteworthy that you see, everything just seems to be fine. Uh, the less you write, the better. You know, 
was a sunny day, <laughs> something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but um, it, it, you know, don't come up with things. Essentially, in preparation for our fundraising campaign, we wanted to interview some of our key members um, and just gather some quotes. So um, we've always really appreciated your support and participation, so I knew I had to talk to you. Um, so yeah, I just have a few questions, and it's super informal, so don't worry about your responses, and I'll just be typing the gist of what you say. Okay. Um, so yeah, I guess with that, I'll, I'll start. Um, question one. Okay. Are you, I, I just wanted to uh, ask you if I could record it too, uh, just for my podcast. I did a, uh, an episode with Alex already on the podcast when we were uh, kind of recruiting youth to go to the climate forum that was virtual. And so uh, this will be, and I've actually recorded a few audio off some climate uh, caucus uh, talks because I was just like, like the one where, uh, Princeton and Lytton were talking and I was like people were like oh I want to be able to listen to this later and I'm like yeah I get it I'm on it you know <laughs> so yes, you go awesome. ahead so I'll just say uh it's Sierra right that's it's how Kira Kira, Kira. Kira sorry I <laughs> don't worry don't worry <laughs> Kira so thank you so much Kira for uh inviting me to talk to you guys today and that's awesome. Kira with Climate Caucus awesome awesome shoot all right so what part of Climate Caucus is most valuable to you? Okay, so it's about the people for me, right? You know, everything is about relationships uh, because, you know, you work with people you trust, you learn from people you feel like understand your situation. Uh, the Climate Caucus is bringing a lot of important ideas uh, to me, uh, but also... Like, I'm in a small community. We have under 400 people. So that means we have the ability to tax 400 buildings. Uh, and we have, a, like, you know, 1% of 400 isn't much, right? So there's definitely, like, a lot of um, kind of often I have to kind of bring the, like, um, the lower end of the economic equation or you know like I know that a lot of people in our community are um needing some kind of transport situation but there's no way we can have a bus for 400 people because we don't have economies of scale right the whole system is meant to make it big, easier for big to be big right you know and so when I can see um like when Climate Caucus is doing research about uh, in in Ontario, where this like rideshare company has partnered with a municipality to offer sort of uh, like a, a bus or an Uber kind of integrated approach, I say, look at what these smaller communities are doing. They're not Toronto. They're not Vancouver. They're people who are working with any willing partners. And I know that, um, like, I just got some information uh, from our staff about how many vehicles we have in the village of Tassis Fleet. Uh, so when we insure our 18 vehicles, you know, all of them are not electric, right? You know, but when I see other communities who are saying, 
we think it's worthwhile to invest in an electric school bus for the future. You know, I can say, cool, look, look what other people are doing, you know? And so, uh, it's really helpful for me to, um, stay positive, (laughs) just stay hopeful. (laughs) Uh, So I found that climate caucus has been a huge, um, rainbow. You know, it's been a rainbow for me because I really need to have that like, oh, well, it rains a real lot. So I need to have those sort of like glimpses of like hope in a way. And so that's what Climate Caucus has really been for me. I don't always get to be the one that brings up like, oh, we have a success story to share. I tend to be on the like rainy cloud part of it. Uh, Oh, I wish we had a success story to share, but I really do love hearing other people's success stories. And I do love bringing um, what's working elsewhere into the village of Tassis, right? Awesome. I I loved that answer. That was great. Yeah, I love that we can provide that glimpse of hope for you. And it really is all about the network and the relationships and the support and knowing that other people are going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, having those resources available. So that was great. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, Second question. Um, in what ways does Climate Caucus help you in the work you're doing? Okay, so I made this huge, like, kind of word map uh, in preparation of this talk today. So the work that we're doing does tend to sort of focus on needs, not wants, right? You know, we need to... Uh, uh, we have two sewage treatment plants here because we used to have more people, but we have been shrinking rural shrinkage is like a, one of those academic terms that I realized applies to my community. Um, and so in order to have efficiency, we have to deactivate one of the treatment plants so that we're not paying for two pumps and two staff and two buildings. And these things were sort of like being more efficient in that sense. And so, um, or we're, we're hoping to. And so we need to apply for grants to deactivate one of our treatments, uh, water treatment centers. And I often find uh, talking about asset management or any kind of like, whether that's hard assets, like, you know, the school bus I mentioned earlier, or the, the, the plumbing in the streets, the sewer and the water lines, or even it's human resources, like um, investing in your staff training and retention and um, benefits, you know, these things are really important um, reciprocal relationships, right? Like I, when I talk about asset management, I talk about the shirt that is more holes than shirt, right? And at one point, it's not even really considered a shirt anymore. And, and that visual really works well for the kind of water and sewer infrastructure that are under municipal roads. Um, and we have in Tassis a lot of leaks because of like, so just to paint you a picture, there's two mountains and then there's the valley. And in the valley, it's filled with hog fuel from when we did have a mill. And so that's like a byproduct of milling wood. It's sort of like sawdust. And so they flattened out the estuary and put two thirds of the buildings in town on that liquefied sawdust that's under the ground and so that makes a lot of breaks in pipes and um and I know that 
none of that is really exciting. Like no taxpayers are like, oh, I, you know, people talk about dog parks, people talk about property maintenance, people don't talk about, you know, the things that are underground and they buried there on purpose, right? <laughs> so uh, I think that kind of bringing, um, bringing that reality of like having a need to invest in, in sort of the, the core infrastructure of service delivery is really important. And I think that like another thing that I like to highlight, uh, especially because I did mention Lytton and Princeton and, and that emergency sort of um, episode that we, we talked about uh, on Climate Caucus. Um, uh, you know, you can prepare your community by investing in things like a fire hall or hydrants or, you know, fire trucks are one of those ones in our fleet of 18, you know, garbage trucks, all those things. Uh, but some things you can't prepare for. And so having um, some kind of like, I don't know, question mark or like, these are the these are the things that are helping us prepare uh, for emergencies. And these are the emergencies that we can already understand. Like none of us saw COVID coming in a way, right? And that was an emergency, but it wasn't one that we were prepared for in any way, unless we were maybe a doctor or a scientist who understood a lot about communicable diseases. And um, so, you know, I guess, the shortest answer for this question is to expect surprises, right? You know, <laughs> which, you know, that is what the climate will give us. You know, we will be continuously surprised by what we didn't think we knew. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I, I, I feel like maybe you might overlap some answers with these questions. I know. I I always, I never really stick to the... Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> I, I'm loving your answers, so please don't worry about that. Um, do you have any Climate Caucus success stories or things we have helped you achieve? Mm. Well, achieving is a tricky thing. I have things that I have been excited to hear about, like the Zungabus and Pell River. Um, I think that that's something that we need to copy uh, because we do have a lot of people retired or disabled on fixed incomes that don't have their own car. And so they, and it's, you know, three hours to the closest actual grocery store. We have a general store here, but it's not the same as, you know, supplying your needs. And, uh, and I know that having, done some studies about age-friendly transportation and about just being able to age in place because these are the realities of our community uh transportation really always comes up high on this like what what can help it what can help me stay in my home longer right you know what can help me live a more independent life as I am not able to climb the mountain like I used to and I think that uh I think that um, having examples like that, there's other examples of communities, small communities that are, have like some kind of village van or bus. I know a lot of the um, 
what are they called? Gulf Islands have like, you know, like Gertie, the Gabriola bus or whatever. Right. You know, and it, and it comes into this, um, it's a social thing, you know, in small towns, uh, it's not just you get on the bus with a bunch of strangers, like it would be in Whistler, Victoria, wherever, you know, where, uh, it's, it's more of a, you know, the people there, they're your neighbors and friends and you can, you know, plan a day together because how people are functioning now here is by developing those relationships and asking favors of people, you know? And so, uh, like I just had, uh, I guess this is a success story in the sense that someone recently moved here from Nanaimo and she moved here and doesn't drive because she has anxiety for driving. And I'm like, wow, I love that you live here and you don't have your own car, you know, like, because that means you are sort of the poster child for, um, what we're already doing, which is a success, which is building relationships and asking friends and, Oh, can you, are you going to town? Can you get me some almond milk? Awesome. You know, like, and trading favors. And that's really like, um, community success, right? You know, but it's not a formal thing, you know, like it's not like, and we have been trying to work on some formal thing with the senior society where we could sort of like get some seed money and invest in a bus and then have voluntary drivers and have maybe, you know, like some kind of app where you can call it or you can just call the phone number and and book a day if you have to go to the doctor's appointment because more than I have a lot of success stories to share, I have a lot of kind of reality checks, right? Where like letting people know where the hard boundaries are of these. Like when when people need to go to the hospital because they're having a stroke or a heart attack, they can't drive themselves, you know? <laughs> um, but who do they call, right? You know, who who's offering that service? And people have tried to sort of do some economic... Uh, development and some like small businesses to try to offer these sorts of services because the need is exists. It's a, a big need, but it's also about the ability to pay, right? You know, that's why in cities, sometimes they have like, oh, students drive, ride the bus for free because we're encouraging people to do, you know, green, um, green lifestyle and things like that. And when I lived in Toronto before too, I remember there being like, bike racks on the buses so you could take a a bus out to sort of the end of the line and then get on your bike and go around in the country and then come back again and that's not like we don't have those kinds of economies of scale here right you know we have to sort of like take care of each other off our own backs um and that can be really exhausting so it's not so much of a success story Uh, but there is one that I think is, um, definitely worth, there's, there's a win here. Okay. So the win is, uh, when I first got elected, the main issue was, uh, the McKelvey watershed. So the McKelvey watershed has never been logged. It is where we got our water until we were put on an underground well. Um, and it is our secondary water source. Uh, the intake comes from a surface water, uh, And we keep that license because we want to, because there are industrial contaminants buried in this area from when we had jobs and mills and stuff like that. And so doing underground water was required by uh, VHA, which is Vancouver Island Health Authority. But 
we need to have a secondary option in case we, in our tests, we uncover uh, contaminants from industrial dumping that was there. And so the success part is that we were able to defer logging of the McKelvey watershed because we did an asset inventory and that wasn't an asset that is owned by us like a school bus or a fire truck or a garbage truck but it's an asset that is sort of it is upstream of the municipality and it makes us understand how like if this goes wrong then this is our second our, our backup our secondary plan and so having uh the ability to do an asset inventory on our surrounding it's the watershed is in fact out of the jurisdiction of the municipality it's not in town it's out of town but it's um you know there's a lot to discover there in the way that we don't know what kind of species live there maybe some that have never been discovered you know and because it's never been logged and it's completely pre-colonial so this is a huge win by us having the ability to um, recognize and value the future. Like, I see this as not just as a carbon sink or a water source or a habitat for, you know, species or a living lab for wilderness um, studies, but I see this as you know, when we sort of start or when we stop valuing things in a dollar way, this is going to be, you know, we're going to be able to understand that, like, the things that we actually need, like water and oxygen, are the things that we will start to value when we when we get desperate enough to, I guess. That's <laughs> that's uh, definitely a long game, but it's something that is, uh, you know, before there was a Canada, there was trees in this valley, right? You know, and they are still there. Maybe some are still growing, you know, maybe some are just died of age instead of logging, which is really a beautiful thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, Sarah. Thank you. And that is a huge win. Um, and having those community relationships as well and that reciprocity, I think, is a win in itself, like you said, for smaller communities especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you do have to rely on those relationships, and that's kind of why we love the network that we provide electeds across Canada is to kind of have that virtual community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, the, just one, like, the, yeah. the win about um, sort of, like, there's other communities and that I've learned through Climate Caucus and the other people who talk at at the meetings for Climate Caucus talking about how they're learning to value things that haven't usually been valued like these natural assets like you know carbon sequestration in wetlands and and those sorts of things and so um, when other communities are sort of putting those assets on a, a balance sheet we like our community has a long standing relationship with the timber companies because that's why this town is an incorporated town. We used to actually be a company town that was incorporated separately as a public town now, but before it used to be owned just by the logging, uh, Tassis Company, um, not Tassis Town. 
right? So I think that uh, not ha- like a lot of the demographic shifting to people being more retired and less involved in the industry itself has really put us in a way where we can measure different sticks, right? Measure by different units. And I think that um, other communities doing that helps us understand how ahead of things we can be sometimes, which is interesting because we think of ourselves as kind of behind because we kind of like the town that time forgot, you know? (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, One question left. So how has Climate Caucus helped you make an impact? Well, um, you know, I tend to downplay my impact uh, because I don't, it's not just me alone, right? Like if it's up to me, I'm just one vote. I'm just one voice. I'm a loud one. And I am usually right because I'm willing to change my mind a lot, you know, <laughs> like, and, and understand other people's point of views and, and get into understanding why they have their priorities, right? Like, um, the successes, I guess, that I've had in my first term, which is now coming to an end and we're moving into my second term on November 1st, um, those are like being on the UBCM executive board, UBCM, uh, Union of British Columbia Municipalities executive board as a small community rep and uh, director at large on the AVICC more recently. These are ways that I can remind people in the community of Tassis that the province of British Columbia or the region of Vancouver Island are going to benefit from us telling them our stories, whether they're hard to hear or not. You know, I it's the same like with... I I keep coming back to it because it was a really important um, thing, but, and it's, you know, sort of the climate caucus thing. There's, we're going to have to prepare for and respond to more emergencies, weather storms, stronger systems, you know, and we have to understand how it was in other places, right? And that's sort of like the, the biggest impact because when I can say, um, you know, They didn't have enough time in Lytton to even get their plan off the shelf. It was just a quick evacuation, you know, and and were they able to reach people who didn't have like, you know, the the classic modern ways to to connect with people like when we had our tsunami uh, warning here in Tassis in 2018, January, it was in the middle of the night, the tsunami um, alarm is going off, and some people slept through it, some people are deaf, so they couldn't hear it anyways, they need to have someone go door to door. If it was a real emergency, that means we put those emergency responders in harm's way to try to save people who aren't able to be aware. Uh, we have things like um, you know, people who... uh, uh, When we had sort of the tsunami mapping uh, information session and public engagement in the rec center, there were people who were talking about, oh, well, I'm a senior. I can't climb up the hills behind my house. And that's maybe where I'm focusing now, where 
if there's not a trail or a road or, you know, a, a accessible way up to the muster station, then a lot of people are not going to be able to access those emergency evacuations. And, um, and I know how, like, you know, the impact I've been able to make is to bring the under, like the stories that are hard to hear, you know, hard to feel like you can't do anything about them. Right. Like what, what do I say? Um, I'm sorry you won't make it up in time because you're slow, right? Like there's not, it's a really sad impact, you know, it's a really harsh um, reality and there's a lot of grief and and, um, pain involved in having some of these discussions because, uh, but that's the impact that I'm making. I'm making the impact for the people who aren't going to be able to save themselves right you know i'm telling that story of people who 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 recognize that they hear the tsunami alarm and all they can do is you know sort of like pray and you know cuddle with their dogs or you know sort of like not really even try to get to those high ground situations which is it, it just like it comes to with like a lot of the the climate grief and the justice part of things right like because there's people who like I live in the high ground so I don't have to evacuate but not everyone does and I try to focus on those stories of the hard ones you know the 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 losses and the and the pain because because there'll be winners and there'll be losers and I want uh you know if, if I'm the victor and I get to have a second term of office, then I'm going to be using that platform to talk about um, the ones who didn't get to win, you know, the losses and, and the people who had to leave community because <clears throat> they couldn't age in place because there was no one to care for them, you know, or whatever, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's not all rainbows and, and, and happy sunshine, right? It's definitely a lot of um, uh, uncomfortable realities, you know, uh, species that are extinct and never to be discovered, you know, they they died before we even knew they were there. Um, and I think that that's like part of, that's the other side of the coin, right? You know, it's, the, the, I want there to be a more positive impact, impact story and I work really hard to try to kind of manufacture that hope but I also am really real and, and interested in listening to the people who are suffering the most and who aren't in the position to be the winners right yeah thank you so much Sarah would you say that Climate Caucus and our, our network do you think that we provide you with those stories? Yeah, well, I, I know that... And think about and use for your platform? No, I think that I try to not say... I don't want to bring anybody's, you know, day down with the, the sort of realities of what it's like to live in the Ring of Fire on the Wild West Coast, you know, in the flood zone, you know, in the tsunami area, right? Like, I... I don't, um, nobody 
wants me to bring them down with, you know, like, maybe you're having a nice day and you don't want to talk to me because I might, you know, like, uh, <clears throat> be like, let's talk about what it's like to be homeless, right? You know, <laughs> right? You know, like, let's talk about what it's like to, you know, like, not have um, enough income to keep up with inflation, right? You know, like, no one, <laughs> it's like, so there's the Band-Aid and then there's the wound, right? <laughs> and Climate Caucus is a way for me to hear good things that other places are being able to do. I sometimes have have been, I, I came into this four years ago a lot more hopeful and idealistic and sort of youthful and naive than I am now. And now I'm focusing on those things that are not, um, uh, kind of, um, worth sharing in a way, you know, those are the things that we like try to, we, we cover them, you know, with our, with our band-aids and, and we, um, we, you know, no one wants to be the one from a town that where all the infrastructure is failing because it's all 50 years old and there's more hole than there is shirt, right? You know, or pipe or whatever. Like, so I think that me talking about these things is like, a, in a way, a breath of fresh air because it's real. You know, if you want to be uh, trusted, tell the truth, you know, <laughs> and I think that... Uh, um, the, what I get from Climate Caucus is that it's not all bad, you know, <laughs> like, it, it might be bad from where I'm sitting, where I'm, like, trying to say, oh, I'm sorry, we, <clears throat> I'm, I'm sorry, you know, like, there's no, you're on a waiting list for a care home and you can't, you're, now you're just sort of suffering in the interim, you know, or thinking about my own, like, family. Uh, I know that because I'm from Ontario originally, um, uh, when my grandpa got hit by a car and had dementia, he lived on a bus route. So he was still able to go get stuff, you know, and, uh, and I think that that's not the reality for a lot of people who live in Tassis who are, you know, um, who, who can't move anywhere else because it's expensive other more places than here, right? Like this is where people who get priced out of Victoria maybe would end up not right verse, right? You can't move. You, you have to sell two houses in Tassis to get to Victoria and you have to have two to sell to. And I think that, um, what I get from Climate Caucus is that it is sunny somewhere, you know, and it is, you know, happy and working. And, you know, there, I, I meet people who are like doing work with, you know, measuring water demand and Comox. And I'm like, oh, good. Well, that's really smart because that's actually addressing the, what we need. Like, those are the services that we need. Right. And so having that and, and factored into with like what, um, so it's, it's water demand for like in the Sunshine Coast. I know that they were on water restriction until recently, you know, maybe it's still in place, but they weren't allowed to water their gardens or, you know, have breweries that are, you know, oh, shut, shut down production because we don't have enough water in our system 
to offer these sort of luxuries like alcohol. We we could barely keep the toilets flushing, right? You know, so the sort of like about um, the thrills might play the bills, but if we don't have the base, then we have nothing. And so um, having built relationships with people in the Sunshine Coast or in the Comox or Whistler or wherever and and seeing how other people are having you know a long hike up the hill to the peak to the summit where they have success that's really so so important to me because uh, sometimes it just feels like it's one thing after another where we're not able to do anything about those things because of lack of capacity. But there is definitely still in Tassis a lot of opportunity for investment. Like, I mean, kelp harvesting, uh, fisheries, you know, hiking. This is, these are, we don't run out of water here in Tassis, right? So that is, um, and, and that's what I saw too with COVID where before when we were, before COVID, we were having rural shrinkage, we were losing population, and then it was good to be small, and it was good to have more space, and it was good to have less people in your school, or less people in, you know, like, not having a bus was great, because all the buses were shut down anyways, you know, and so, like, it sort of turned things over for us, and it was like, oh, well, all of our deficiencies are actually assets, too, if you think about it in the twilight zone like where you know we went to and so then we saw people moving you know out of Cumberland and into Tassis because Cumberland was getting too big for them you know (laughs) and I'm like right well Cumberland is still a small community it's a bigger small community and it's closer to service areas um like the hospital isn't you know that far uh from Cumberland but um and that's where, like, it comes on to, again, like, the, the unit of measuring, like, the pricing of things, right? So, um, when like, we don't have any new residential buildings built here, um, this house was built in the 50s that I'm in, and the newest building that we have in Tassis was the Coast Guard. So, we sold a parking lot to them, and they put a, a Coast Guard building there, and that is the federal government investing in our town that was sort of just like holding on by a thread, you know? And so that was something that is a, a positive investment and it's making young people come here because young people work for the Coast Guard and young people respond in those like, um, uh, emergency calls that are on the water. Right. You know, and also, uh, just from that other thing, there's, uh, was a, an old ship, um, it's called, it, it sunk off the Bly of, of Bly Island, which is in Nootka Sound here on the ocean. And even though it sank 50 years ago, it started leaking fuel because of a weather thing. And then the fact that we had the Coast Guard able to respond here and able to sort of like deal with it instead of no one noticing and no one caring that has been huge for us you know the fact that um having having people able and willing to to respond is huge and and some of the messes that are you know like 50 years ignored um (laughs) would be great to like there's a lot of economic development potential in those things um and 
I would love to see more people make Tassis their home uh, because it's a really good community where people do know each other and care about each other. And I feel that same thing about the, the Climate Caucus community. You know, like I, I've met a lot of friends virtually through this, this work that you're doing. Uh, oh, I'm going to get it wrong again. Kira, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I guess I really rely on phonetic things. <laughs> Don't worry, I get it all the time. It's really okay. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And back to what you were saying before, I feel, well, personally, climate climate grief is a very real and, and daunting thing to be experiencing, and I hope Climate Caucus, that we alleviate that for our members, and it's really good to hear that we can be a source of hope because I know it's, it's a very daunting thing to be going through, especially in your position. So, um, that was really good to hear. So no, thank you. it is. And, and like a lot of the sort of like, whether it's carbon tax and green economies and these things, these are city things. And when I went to Whistler recently, uh, for the UBCM forum in September, it was like mayor Brad West of, Quitlam, maybe somewhere on the mainland. And he was saying, he said, my community is resource dependent. And he said it again, my community is resource dependent. And where do you think the resources come from? They don't come from the places that are already fully urbanized, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I just, I, um, I'm really glad that someone in the urban environment understands which side their bread is buttered on and where that cow lived and how valuable it is to enjoy, you know, fresh water, clean air, you know, um, hope, you know, <laughs> hope is so, and, and that's what, you know, living in a wild area, there's definitely a lot of challenges with respect to the culture part and like how I wish we had a bus to, get people to the hospital and I wish we could afford it and I wish we could get a new fire hall and all these wish lists but the the land and the water is still good right it's still like this wild place where there's wandering salamanders and you know food security you can if you can catch a fish you can eat you know and I think that um there's something really inspiring about having having those uh, wild places, about having people who do skill sharing, uh, like through the Climate Caucus, and who do sit with you in those grief times, right? It's, it's, um, it's nothing that can be fixed. Sometimes it just needs to be felt. And, and I know as I watch, um, you know, with the war in Ukraine and, you know, Pakistan flooding and so many other, like, it is a global world, right? Like, my small West Coast lifestyle is one part of that, but I recognize how how good I have it in a lot of ways and how, um, how free I am to be able to sort of, like, witness the splendor of this wild world you know like it's it's epic you know and uh, I know that you're gonna be uh, going down the hill in the winter and you know like living that like you know 
a hair straight back kind of, you know, <laughs> um, pace, you know, and it's really exciting because like something I know about Whistler is that it's named Whistler because of a, a little groundhog creature is like a whistling marmot that lives up there and it would make these like and so all of the names that we have even the ones that are like colonial in a sense right are um they're built on older wiser ways and they're it's still there you know like under toronto there's still all the rivers that existed that always existed they're sort of more sewers now but they um the land is underneath everything you know and the the strength, you know, the strength that we get from relationship with nature, relationship with each other, um, experiencing, like, I think that, I don't, I don't mean to go even on another tangent, but there is definitely something like a spiritual element to having, like, there's a reason why in, um, when you're crossing over to Alberni, you go through the Cathedral Grove. There's a reason why they called that stand of trees a cathedral right you know it's a spiritual experience to be surrounded by this wilderness that is like it makes us and our impact seem pretty small right you know because as much as you know I can fart every single day of my life and drive a truck and you know have all this like carbon but then there's the life of a four thousand year old tree you know, and my life is a lot smaller compared to that, right? You know, and sort of that um, deeper, bigger meaning, you know, and and how, yeah, we do make a huge impact. You know, <laughs> I'm not trying to downplay that, but I do see how, um, you know, it's there are mysteries. I agree. I love that outlook so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah, you're amazing. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's um, it's been a process, this fundraising campaign, to get it started. But uh, this is my favorite part, being able to connect with our members and just hear about and our impact. And it's, it's amazing for me to listen. So thank you so much. So... I'll just ask you one question now, sort of about the fundraising plan or what, like, because when I got involved with Climate Caucus, it was probably in 2019, and so you're newer uh, in that sense, and um, and I've been involved in a lot of fundraising for a lot of things, and I just wonder, like, right now I'm on the Nooka Sound Watershed Board. I've got this sticker here and we sell stickers to fishermen who might want the salmon enhanced, right? So it's sort of this like back to that thrills pay the bills kind of thing, right? So um, how are, like, I understand Climate Caucus to be really effective because it's like getting all like sort of the change makers together all in once in this like, you know, Hollywood Squares kind of thing and and we can talk about the successes, like what's happening <clears throat> um, with the Zunga bus or whatever, you know, or the challenges. Um, but from a, you know, there's not federal grants. There's not, uh, like, what is, is it, um, 
private membership? Is it uh, like how you would join a political party? Is it those sort of uh, plan for um, the next year's budget? Um, so we've we've talked about the private membership, but I we keep going back to um, keeping our services and our resources free because we, we just want to provide that open membership and open network so it's accessible to everyone. Um, and Alex has all, all of the information about this, and she's kind of leading the of course campaign. So yeah. I only know little bit about it Mm -hmm. um but yeah we're starting our campaign i think at the end of this year uh more details to come and i know our board members each have a goal um to reach i think of a thousand each um and dollars yes yeah and we've received a, a few donations um from some key members recently um and we get a lot of we get some monthly donations um, okay. from some of our members, but yeah. the, the plan is to uh, encourage people to yeah. donate. Yeah. More. Well, and this is this is sort of why I was bringing it up because, like, you know, um, it's it's the BC NDP um, in British Columbia as the you know, Corgan's still the premier, I think, but um, there's definitely a, a handoff happening and. The only time I ever had a union was when I worked for Greenpeace. Every other job that I had was non-union job, whether that was working for the municipality as a lifeguard, serving, all these things. But it's interesting to me because when I was working for Greenpeace, I was soliciting donations as a fundraiser and getting people to go from a one-time gift to a monthly donation where we can plan and budget, right? You know, we can hire staff and we can keep the lights on, so to speak, right? And I think that that's one of the things that I'm trying to move forward with a fundraising plan for the Watershed Board is because um, having, you know, the fishing lodge give a big check once a year is really great and we're thankful for it. But having each of the people who give to the fishing lodge, who are the customers of the fishing lodge, have a direct relationship with us where they would give, you know, like, you know, a dollar a day kind of thing. Um, You know, um, that has been a huge part of, like, and having that experience of fundraising for a non-governmental environmental organization in my my past lives, was part of the skills to get to this point of being a political person where I'm now fundraising for myself and my re-election campaign, right? So I see how these, um, I don't know, money relationships, right? Where it enables us to do this important work and then like trying to find people who we can work with and who want to support the work, but also, um, like where it doesn't feel like, um, like I know from Greenpeace, it was like, oh, well, we don't really like, we might buy shares in a company like ESSO so that we can vote at the annual general meeting, but we don't really accept donations from people who's mission is to do the exact opposite of what we're trying to do, right? So it sort of has these, like, um, poles, you know, poles of belief and, and, and mission. And I think that, uh, you know, softening 
Uh, this is the thing about the finance part of things and, and fundraising is that um, when it's fundraising day, it's a wide open door, right? You know, when I'm knocking on doors for Terry Fox or UNICEF or whatever it is, it's anyone who's willing to give, right? You know, so it's like a wide open door and it's it's about having uh, people support the work that you're doing because they see value in it and they see that there can be a return on investment with some of the work that is uh, is being delivered on, right? You know, like it's... It's, um, it's, it's a tightrope. <laughs> I agree. It's, it's been a tough process. We, we started planning in the summer for the fundraising campaign and, um, yeah, Alex gets the not fun logistical side of it and mm. I get the fun interview like this communication yep. side of it. So yeah, we're just trying to piece it all together and mm. we, we gave the board members donor packages so that they could it to you know spread the word about climate caucus and our impact um but yeah we we're really just getting started and none of us really have the experience yet Mm -hmm. um but yeah so if you have any tips uh we welcome them because i know you have the experience well i've fundraised for a lot of different things and that's like the being a professional fundraiser definitely it's like being a politician you know it's like being a lawyer it's like being one of those things that you're kind I'm kind of embarrassed to be you know (laughs) and uh you know but that doesn't stop me from being it and (laughs) because you know we need alligators just as much as we need hippos or something more furry and cute you know bunnies you know (laughs) (laughs) and that's like sort of the the beauty of having um that wide open door right you know and having i know that uh even like not from uh it's it's always fundraising but when i was involved with the um i lived in parksville for a minute or two and i was involved with the art center there um and i find doing a mail out at Christmas time that says thank you is a really good way to get um, monthly givers uh, because when you thank them ahead then you include the, the, the kind of uh, name, address you know, $5 a month kind of you know, uh, paper uh, donor package kind of thing but you're, you're putting that cart before the horse and saying thank you for your generous legacy gift before they've even given it <laughs> and it's Christmas time and people are in the giving mood and uh, so that's that's one of the things that I you know it's hard to understand the success of things because there is attrition and people do drop off and I know that I used to give a lot more generously when I was working in the fundraising field um, and now that I am not I have to stretch the dollars that I have and I don't have as much charitable dollars anymore. I have to give more time, you know? And, uh, but I think that there's, there's a lot of uh, people who do want to have that like warm, fuzzy feeling and who want to be able to, um, you know, say that they, you know, their gift is, is meaningful. And so, um, and yeah, it's a good time to give, is uh 
It's just around the corner. <laughs> yeah. So that's plan. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I can tell she's very um accomplished and wise, you know. Like I think that she's up to the task and I and I know that Alex is um someone who I I see doing such good things and part, you know, climate caucus is a part of it. So I'm, um, I was bummed when I didn't get to meet up with everybody in Whistler and September because I couldn't find the place. So I just, and it was in the hotel that I was staying in, you know, <laughs> That's, it, always after the fact, I kind of learn those things, you know, I'm like, Oh, and I was at this reception, but the reception that I wanted to go to was like right there. I should have just, wandered down from my room to you know the 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 pub that was in my hotel um and 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 sort of let things be more organic instead of trying so hard all the time and pushing so far up the hill (laughs) it's not always as hard as I make it to be sometimes it's just right there (laughs) and sometimes it's just asking right you know sometimes it's just like I mean I did know people who we're like, they had the, the climate ca- caucus buttons. And I was like, oh, I should have connected with you before. Because you seem to have found the right place to go. <laughs> Anyways. Um, oh, there will be other opportunities for in-person meetups for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, and that's, it's nice to meet people in person who you feel like are your peers and you're working well with. But also, this has like enabled me like zooming in has enabled me to participate in like do 10 times the work right you know because I don't have to spend an entire day driving to somewhere or whatever right so um getting more onto like virtual there's like a lot of carbon savings and a lot of um time you know time is money so I thank you so much for uh your time and all your talent. Yeah. Thank you so much. And do we have your permission to use uh, these quotes on our website? Of course, yeah. You know, I'm sure you'll only use the ones that make me seem like I know what I'm talking about. And you'll, you know, the ones where I'm just randomly telling some crazy story, you'll just, um, you know, they'll be be less useful for you. I promise you it was all useful and I could not be more thankful for your time. So thank you so much, Sarah. Super good to see you. You too. I'll see you soon. Okay. Ciao. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Um, some examples of the types of organizations that have been prescribed in the regulation. Of course, uh, we know local governments are included in this uh, regulation, but also school districts, independent schools, post-secondary institutions, libraries, municipal police departments, health authorities, crowns, and many others. The regulation came into effect in September 1st of this year and organizations are broken into different phases. Those in phase one will have one year, so until September of 2023 to comply, and those in phase two will have until September of 2024 to comply. Next slide, please. 
Now, I wanted to really emphasize this next slide. Um, we know that organizations um, have a wide range of mandates and capacity to do this work. And we knew that there wouldn't be one set of requirements that would work for all of these 750 organizations. And with that, we have taken a really flexible approach to how the requirements are framed in the Accessible BC Act in part three. Um, so we know that these organizations might also be at different stages of their accessibility journeys with some already having plans in place and are building on that work and some just getting started thinking about accessibility. So I wanted to highlight a few strategies that are available to organizations and how you come into compliance. First, um, organizations, if you already have a plan or a committee or a feedback mechanism in place, you can use that for the purposes of the Act. We know there are plenty of uh, local governments out there who are doing great work and are leaders uh, in this field. So we want to ensure that folks can, can build on that work. Um, second, um, an organization could choose to adopt an existing planning document such as a diversity and inclusion strategy and add in accessibility to that or to build accessibility into other strategic planning documents that they're working on. Uh, third, uh, and I, we've seen some, some great examples of this as well in the local government space, is that organizations could choose to collaborate um, with another similar organization to develop a joint accessibility plan or an accessibility committee. And I think one of the, the great things is when we see collaboration on accessibility amongst organizations, great ideas come out of that. So next slide, please. In the next few slides, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the three requirements and talk about what is legally required under the Act. So first, if we, if we look at accessibility plans, the purpose of these plans are to outline the activities that the organization plans to do to identify, remove, and prevent barriers. The plan must be developed in consultation with the Accessibility Committee. This is the piece that I mentioned on how the three requirements are designed to feed into one another. Um, organizations um, can determine the content in their own plans. Um, and this was really important in building in that flexibility. We know that plans are gonna look different for local governments in comparison to, to Crown organizations just by the nature of, of what your organization does. Um, so you can determine what what is in the content of that plan. Um, an organization, as I mentioned, must consult their accessibility committee on the plan. We also ask that organizations consider several accessibility principles that are outlined in the Act, such as inclusion, adaptability, diversity, collaboration, self-determination, and universal design, and in how they're thinking about the content of their plans. Uh, organizations must make the plan publicly available. Um, so for instance, by, by posting it on your website um, and the plan must be reviewed and updated every three years. Next slide, please. So the next requirement is the Accessibility Advisory Committee. So this is designed to provide advice to the organization, both on their plan and also how they're pursuing, removing, um, and preventing barriers around accessibility. 
the act does include some some goals for organizations to strive towards in terms of membership on this committee. I want to emphasize that these are to the best extent possible and we're encouraging people to, to aim to have this composition on their committees. Um, so we ask folks to aim to have at least half the members have lived experience of disability or be part of an organization that is uh, serves the disability community and also to think and reflect on how your um, committee is representing the diversity of British Columbia and also including Indigenous uh, representation as well. Next slide, please. So the third uh, requirement is the feedback mechanism. And this is really designed to provide a way for those who are in the organization or interacting with the organization to provide feedback on accessibility. We know that sometimes it's a barrier for folks. They're not able to communicate oh, I tried to access this service, but I was unable to. So they need a point of contact in which they can, can provide the organization with that, that information. Some examples of, of how we've seen organizations doing this is simply by having an email address listed on their, on their website or by creating a, an online contact form on their website as well. Uh, this feedback should be considered when organizations are updating their accessibility plans and also this um, feedback can be shared with the organization's accessibility committee to support their ongoing work to remove barriers. Next slide. So um, it's important to us that we're supporting organizations in meaningfully complying uh, with these requirements. So government has provided a grant of $3 million over the next three years that will be to develop resources to support organizations who are prescribed to meet these requirements. This uh, funding is being administered by Disability Alliance BC, and um, I'm glad to be joined by our partner at Disability Alliance BC today, Mike Prescott, who I know is going to be sharing more about uh, the initiatives they have to ongoing to support organizations. So I, that's the end of my presentation, and I'll pass it back to Candice. Great. Thank you so much. And um, I'll just note too, I see some good questions coming in in the chat. Um, uh, Chris Bone has asked about a collaboration between local governments and other organizations. Um, so I'll plant the seed on that question, but we'll return to the questions during the Q&A portion, but continue to get your uh, questions in through the chat, but vocalizing that one so you can think about it a little bit. Um, and then now I'll pass things over to Mike Prescott. Oh, thank you, Candice, um, and thank you, Bryn. Uh, I am Mike Prescott. I'm the project manager for the Accessible Organizations Project. I think I've probably talked to a, a number of you already, and um, it's great to see so much enthusiasm around um, where, where we're going with this. And I also acknowledge that there are definitely going to be some challenges, and I think Part of what we do at Disability Alliance BC and in, in, in terms of this project is to address that. Uh, so next slide, please. So uh, in terms of how our role fits into the broader scheme and so that you can understand how this funding and, and the resources are being developed, I've created this little uh, sort of organization chart that shows um, where uh, DABC is in collaboration and communication um, with hub leaders in each of the sectors and uh, so we're getting guidance from 
the hub leaders as to what kind of resources that we want to develop. And we're hoping that that communication between the hub leaders and the prescribed organizations will be in place so that um, we can address the, the three uh, parts of the regulations that uh, Bryn discussed. Next slide, please. So um, again, I really want to stress that it's uh, the, the what we're trying to do in the early stages of this, and, and I should say, you know, this this whole project and the, um, the process that we're going to go through for the next number of years is going to be um, it, it'll it will evolve. It won't be perfect from day one for most organizations, most committees or organizations. So um, don't feel as though you need to have something perfect from day one. Um, and so in order to support that, we want to be very strategic in how we utilize these funds. And in particular, we want to start with um, finding as much as many shared resources that we can possibly develop so that we can really quickly get um, things like templates and training out, out to you as soon as possible. And doing town halls like this are great opportunities to get that the message out. And um, but we also know that there's going to be a, a number of challenges um, and we want to be able to in the future, in the very near future, I will add, uh, customize some of these resources so that, again, it meets that diversity that uh, we know that exists out there in terms of um, uh, how organizations look and how committees might come together. Next slide, please. So this is sort of a, a meant to emphasize the that complexity that we um, uh, must deal with. So we want to really have organizations think outside of just their own um, requirements, uh, because as as was mentioned early on, you know, we have over 750 organizations and to be able to have committees that have <coughs> disabilities on them, um, we have to think about, OK, how are we going to get um, qualified people who can really inform those those um, committees? So if you've got all those um, those prescribed organizations, uh, as, as Bryn alluded to, you know, coming together is going to be a, um, a very important part of that process. And I know one of the questions in the chat was, you know, beyond just um, other uh, other municipalities, can it be other organizations? And so that, again, that flexibility is there. This map sort of shows you with, even within the capital region, you've got um, a couple of the uh, communities already have uh, um, communities already have committees that are in red and others that are in gray. This may not even be up to date anymore. Um, we're really hoping that as committees are put together that they let us know so that um, we can uh, share that with um, sort of the rest of the world. Next slide, please. And this complexity, um, you know, it comes in terms of uh, the size of the organization, where it's located, um, and, and, you know, just the, the resources that they may have available to do these types of come together to create committees and, and plans. So we have Bulkley Valley is one of the examples I love to use um, as a possible, you know, one possible way of coming together is you've got uh, a number of communities um, with public uh, libraries that are within those communities that could come together, for instance, to create a Bulkley Valley uh, committee. So that, and I just use that as an example, not as a, uh, a suggestion, but that's one option. But you've got another challenge where you've got the town of Zavalos with um, very you know distant from any other 
uh, other community. Um, so again, it might be maybe it's the regional district. So we can you can be again very flexible in how uh, you think about how a committee might come together. Next slide, please. So know, in right? terms of that um, that complexity, there's uh, the things this that you're going to sort of have talks to do a lot about accessibility uh, off of each other. There's the more organizations you bring together, obviously, the more complicated it becomes to um, develop plans and whatnot and have meetings and things like that. But it does make it easier potentially to find um, members for your committee if you're going to look um, more outwardly to the to the um, uh, citizenry. Um, and but at the same time, if you're quite dispersed, then how are you going to meet on a regular basis? So these are some challenges that will have to sort of um, take be taken into consideration as you're developing your committees. And and uh, right now, I think getting input from the communities as to how they would like support in that, that regard, we, um, we, we definitely want to um, get as much as possible because we, we're not here to prescribe how organizations can come together, but we can help support um, the decisions and make those connections potentially for you. Next slide, please. So in terms of developing an accessibility plan, that, this is kind of what we've been putting a lot of our focus in early on because I know that I've had number of people send me messages asking about, oh, do you have a, te uh, a template that we could use or uh, a terms of reference that, uh, th that we might require for, uh, for the committee once it's put together or even just recruiting documents? What kind of um, you know, wording should we think about when we're sending out recruitment uh, um, messages out to the community? And so, so that's some of the, one of the things we're really focused on and we we sent out a, a request to uh, the different sectors to join us to a co-creation workshop where we're going to develop a generic um, a, a generic template that hopefully will meet the needs of a lot of, of the committees uh, and, and that will be in um, the, our target date for that is November 23rd uh, where we'll develop uh, templates and guidelines for organizations to think about as to okay how do we um, actually complete a, a, an accessibility plan and not just check, you know check marks um, as you're going through it. Um, there's also training that's being developed. So we've created uh, a partnership with Vancouver Island University where they've created a um, an actual course for um, that that addresses many of the challenges that you might face. But we were we're going to boil it down to a module that. Um, uh, maybe a 15 to 30 minute module that people could come in and see again many of the things you might learn today but in far more detail because this is really just a bit of a teaser um, for what we're doing. Uh, what we do have uh, already is a website um, it's uh, bcaccessibilityhub.ca we are in the process of improving it um, uh, and adding more and more content so there's uh, examples of of uh, other plans and other types of documents that you might find useful from other some of the other, those other jurisdictions in Canada to help you with the, the planning process or the establishing the, the committees and, and whatnot. Um, as I said, we're we're continuing to develop it and uh, always looking for 
more feedback and uh, you know requests, I'm happy to to um, address those and, and do our best to um, deal with those things. But I think as um, time goes on, it's more it's going to be a lot more of how can we directly um, work with the, the hubs to address more specific questions. And so we're, we want to develop a, a, a consulting network network of experts in this field that you could draw on um, to assist with those those um, those plans. Uh, and, and there's a, additional things that we're looking at in terms of um, uh, uh, adding more webinars and, and things like that. But what it comes down to is really based on demand um, if, if this is if we find that there's a number of groups uh, that come together and say well we really want this and we haven't even um, thought of it that's great and we will um, jump right on it and figure out how we can uh, work with the the hub leaders to the to, um, to, to, to move forward on that next slide please so yeah, so some of those other resources that have been identified in, in other sectors are things like having timely reminders about um, uh, uh, pending um, deadlines, potentially uh, having audits, uh, accessibility audits that, um, that can be used, uh, lunch and learns. Uh, it'd be great too to have peer networks. I know that in the lower mainland, um, that we have one community that's taken uh, taken the initiative to try to bring together a group of the municipalities to uh, to address uh, to, to think about it even at a higher level it's not necessarily a committee but it may be bringing a series of committees together and so when those kind of things happen in, in particular we really want the opportunity to be able to share it with the rest of the um the network of, of organizations that are um, that, that will have committees, and I think again, I've seen a number of questions just along that line. You know, what are some examples? Um, you'll hear in a couple minutes from the Whistler. Uh, there's Saanich. There's um, you know, I think um, Vancouver. I, I believe Surrey. So there's things percolating in some places, uh, and if you're not one of those, don't worry. That's again, it's what. What, we're, what I'm here for, and um, I'm always happy to get um, requests and whatnot to, to um, see what we can do there. Uh, next slide. And the last part is uh, about creating feedback mechanisms. Um, we, uh, you know, if I think it can be very, it, it, it's, there's a, quite a range of things that can be done. Thinking of it as whether it's just a, a link on your website or having forums where you bring people together, either um, online or in person, kind of thing. I know as part of my, I'm a, also a postdoctor at UBC, and one of the projects we work on worked on was bringing um, members of the community together to share experiences, and um, they found working with people with disabilities and as a person with a disability myself I think that is very powerful to um, uh, empower your uh, your planning so you know, take into consideration all that and hopefully the website will help with some of those things I'm there for other elements of it um, but again we're it, it's an evolving process and, and um, uh, we're, we're gonna learn over time what works for different groups is, are, are, are going to be different from, from others. Next slide. So one of the proposed approaches, and I don't think you can see this, but 
it's um, you could establish a committee um, and then do your plan and then think about your feedback mechanism sort of in a linear fashion, or you could think of it more, um, okay, we, maybe we establish a preliminary committee of a few people to help us shape a vision of where we want to be with our committee. That helps, that would then help in your recruitment of the right people. I've, I've been on a number of committees where I get there and I'm thinking, I don't think I'm the right person to be on this, or, um, it, you know, it, and in order to keep people involved, it, it, that having that match is really important. But I think having that iterative approach might be might work for some of the organizations that may be less ready and or new to this. Next slide. So um, again, the next steps are just to uh, enhance the <coughs> resources that we the shared resources that we're developing. Listen to what it is that um, the prescribed organizations uh, want to want to have, and um, continue to, to collaborate in that manner and, and uh, uh, move forward with uh, making BC a more accessible product. So there are the links to the website, and we have a survey where we ask similar questions as to what you got asked to. Um, at the beginning of this presentation, uh, uh, in, in particular, one question that was asked that is important to me is, is will be um, whether or not you've actually established a committee and um, letting us at uh, EABC know um, so that we can, uh, we can, you know, maybe share your stories with others. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. We really appreciate you taking the time to be here and to share some uh, helpful info. And um, I saw there was quite a few questions in the chat about templates, so I'm sure it'll um, be uh, you know, a great value to see some of the work that you folks are doing to try to help um, create some of those materials or templates and uh, toolkits of the same kind. Um, we've, I'm making note of questions and we'll definitely get to as many as we can at the Q&A period. Um, I've also noted that I'll uh, save the questions and anonymize them um, so that we can share them with the presenters, but they're also happy to share their contact information as well in the chat. Um, so with that, and now we're over to last but not least, Courtney. Uh, take it away, Courtney. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to meet you all virtually, and we really appreciate the opportunity to be here today to share with you the development of Whistler's Accessibility Action Plan. I'm the manager of policy planning with the Resort Municipality of Whistler, and you'll also hear me call that the, the ROW from time to time today. So to start, the purpose of Whistler's Accessibility Action Plan is to provide actions that identify, remove, and prevent barriers to individuals interacting with the Resort Municipality of Whistler and these actions further the RMOW's efforts to make its workplace, services, and built environment accessible and welcoming to people of all ages and abilities. Next slide, please. So this is our agenda for this portion of today's session. To set the stage, you will hear a brief background on accessibility initiatives in Whistler and about Whistler's Accessibility and Inclusion Committee. We will then spend most of our time exploring the methodology used to create Whistler's Accessibility Action Plan. I will then touch on Whistler's final report and its implementation, 
And to close, I will present some lessons learned from the Whistler experience in hopes of helping other communities in their journeys to create accessibility plans. Next slide, please. So this slide speaks to the history of accessibility in Whistler, and it helps to set the stage for the period before we embarked on the action plan. As part of the action plan development itself, this history was inventoried and compiled, and a summary of all this historic work can be found in Appendix A of Whistler's final report. Accessibility initiatives in Whistler really began with the preparation, with the preparation for and the delivery of the 2010 Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games. To help drive these initiatives, an accessibility coordinator was hired and has been very helpful that this staff member is still part of our team today. During this pre-games time, there was significant effort put into wayfinding and mapping of accessible features and routes throughout Whistler Village. There were also accessibility audits of the transit system, the village, parks and municipal facilities. Major barriers into the village were retrofitted with ramping and wayfinding signage. And in addition, an accessibility committee was established and we will speak about this committee in more detail in a moment. Next portion of the slide, please. Following the games, there have been major capital projects in Whistler that have incorporated accessibility and universal design into their construction. This includes Whistler Olympic Plaza, where there's a variety of accessible seating and viewing areas, as well as low-grade ramping systems leading to accessible pathways throughout the site. Accessibility has also been incorporated into the back of house features. There's also the Gateway Loop Transit Exchange that has incorporated accessibility into the loading and staging areas. And additionally, Whistler's new washroom project has seen three sites developed and these sites have both accessible and universal washroom facilities in them, which also includes gender neutral washrooms. Next portion of the slide, please. Whistler has policy direction related to accessibility in its official community plan, which was adopted in June of 2020. Universal design in particular has been integrated into the OCP. While the OCP sets the overall policy direction for the Accessibility Action Plan, the actions themselves help to implement policies related to land use and development, health, safety and well-being, recreation and transportation. Next part, please. And the Accessibility Action Plan is where we are today. The Accessible Canada Act came into force in 2019 and we knew that an Accessible BC Act was being considered. We recognized that we would likely need an accessibility plan and that we also needed a more comprehensive approach to incorporating accessibility into the ways that we serve the entire community. We came to council with the project approach, work plan, team and timeline in February 2020. Council approved the approach and we began developing the accessibility plan. As a note, Whistler's plan focuses on actions that the municipality will take although implementation of some of the actions will need to be done in partnership with community organizations. Next slide, please. This slide speaks to Whistler's Accessibility and Inclusion Committee, which we also refer to as AIC. This slide was included because the Accessible BC Act states that an organization must establish an accessibility committee 
and the organization must consult with its accessibility committee when developing its accessibility plan. As previously mentioned, Whistler established this committee of council in 2009. Before this, there was an informal accessibility advisory group that formed in 2006, and this group advised on a number of the early initiatives, like the first wayfinding and mapping efforts. This committee was previously known as the Measuring Up Select Committee of Council in recognition of the provincial program. In December of 2021, the name was changed to the AIC in order to make the committee's purpose more understandable to staff, the public, and community partners. As noted on this slide, the committee works to assess and improve community accessibility and inclusion, focusing on the experiences of persons with disabilities, but encompassing the whole community. And it provides advice to council on strategies to reduce social, physical, and sensory barriers. The committee has four non-voting members consisting of one councillor and three staff from the planning department. It has 11 voting members in total. It has nine voting members consisting of representatives from key community organizations, as well as two at-large voting members. The AIC seeks to have members with disabilities or experiences pertaining to disability and aging matters. There is also a desire to have balanced gender rate balance gender representation and overall diversity on the committee. As a potential tip to other communities, the AIC terms of reference was recently revised so that organizations may send different members to different meetings, and this helps with the committee being able to achieve quorum. Next slide, please. So the next set of slides move on to discussing the development of Whistler's Accessibility Action Plan. The slide presents the overall methodology. There were five key steps in developing the plan, moving from initial research to finalizing the plan. The steps in between involved establishing a framework, drafting preliminary actions, and public engagement. And we will now explore each of these steps in more detail. Next slide, please. But before moving on to the detailed steps, we thought it would be useful for you to know who was involved in the development of this plan. Overall oversight was provided by the General Manager of Resort Experience and the Director of Planning, who are part of Whistler's senior leadership team. The work was chiefly carried out by the project team, which consisted of the Accessibility Coordinator, myself, the Manager of Policy Planning, and the Policy Planning Analyst. We also retained an outside consultant to assist with committee and community engagement. We also involved some staff subject matter experts, which we will discuss later on in the presentation. And additionally, the project involved the AIC, council and the public. Next slide, please. The first step was initial research and it was the accessibility coordinator that drove this initial research. The initial research started with a comprehensive review of existing legislation, standards, policies, and plans within Canada, the US, Europe, Australia, and elsewhere. This helped the staff team understand best practices and identify common themes with, with regard to what is being done for accessibility throughout many parts of the world. This step also helped staff to understand the Canadian and BC context in detail. The sources that were considered during this review are summarized in Appendix C of Whistler's plan. 
Next slide, please. At the start of the project, there was also a review of census data and all municipal bylaws, policies, plans, and accessibility initiatives. This was done to determine what was missing or needing an update. This analysis was informed by looking at the best practices in other jurisdictions that was discussed on the previous slide. The census data specifically helped us to determine how the population is aging and if we are prepared to support them with our available housing, infrastructure, and services. This age dimension was important because according to the United Nations, more than 46% of older adults, those being 60 years and older, have disabilities. Next slide. The next step Whistler staff undertook was to develop an overall framework for the plan. To organize the actions, staff looked to define focus areas that reflect the commonality in the accessibility needs of Canadians living with disabilities. This overall framework was informed by the content areas of the Accessible Canada Act, shown on this slide as ACA, and the Accessible BC Act, shown on this slide as ABCA. Whistler's action areas were developed considering municipal functions, ACA focus areas, and ABCA standards areas. We were using the Accessible Canada Act focus areas at the start of our project because they were in place before the Accessible BC Act came into force. However, we did recognize that the ABCA was coming into force, so we worked to incorporate the standards areas that were relevant to municipal functions. We generated seven action areas as shown on this slide. The general actions include training, and assessment schedules and also help to advance each of the other six action areas. The other six action areas are improve inclusive service design and delivery, enhance built environment accessibility, continue equitable employment practices, foster accessible communications and engagement, reduce transportation barriers, and support accessible procurement. Overall, the plan presents a total of 59 actions under these action areas. And to help people intuitively navigate the plan and make the document itself more accessible and usable, we used icons to clearly communicate the action area sections. These icons are shown on the bottom of the slide. These theme symbols have been provided with alt text within the final report to make them screen readable as well. Next slide. Section 11 of the Accessible BC Act lists six principles that must be considered when an organization develops and updates its accessibility plan. These principles are inclusion, adaptability, diversity, collaboration, self-determination, and universal design. Whistler staff use these principles throughout the process of developing the plan. In particular, they were a major consideration when drafting the actions. Whistler's final report includes a table that describes how we define these principles and how these principles are incorporated into the action plan. Also of note, the principle of nothing about us without us was a guiding doctrine in the Whistler plan. With regard to this principle, we knew that we needed to have the direct participation of community members and visitors with disabilities that would be affected by the plan. As I will discuss later in this presentation, 
This meant that we did direct outreach to various organizations that serve people with disabilities, both within our community and that make regular trips to Whistler. Next slide. At this point, I will discuss the role of municipal subject matter experts in the development of this plan. Key municipal staff members were chosen by senior management. The table on this slide shows the plan action areas and the staff or departments involved in the project. The table shows that the plan development included representation from virtually all municipal departments. These subject matter experts were first engaged to review and validate the common themes that were identified during the initial research. This review then led to the development of preliminary actions in the plan. And these preliminary actions also underwent a comprehensive staff review. A select number of staff were also engaged to review the final actions in cases where there were significant changes made after the community engagement. It is interesting to note that it was important to involve communications staff in supporting accessible procurement. They were included in this area because the communications department is responsible for the municipality's website and engagement tools, and they have influence on our conferencing software. It is also interesting to note that as a result of the initial research, it became apparent that service design and delivery should be broken down further for staff review. The three new subclassifications for service design and delivery were general customer service, service at events, and service during emergency events. And each of these classifications involved the participation of a different municipal department. Next slide. The third key step of the methodology was developing the preliminary actions. The preliminary actions were developed through the common themes established by the initial research, the gap analysis on municipal policies and bylaws, the review and input from staff, and then the input, input was, that was generated by the Accessibility and Inclusion Committee, as well as by Accessibility Coordinator Knowledge. The AAC was involved twice in the development of the preliminary actions. In April of 2022, the committee provided action ideas based on the theme category and categories within each plan action area. These ideas were classified as already in progress, already in the plan, added to the plan, or rejected with a rationale that was reported back to the committee. All newly chosen actions were added to the preliminary draft action plan. In May of 2022, the AIC reviewed the preliminary draft actions. The AIC provided a satisfaction rating on each of the action areas and added additional feedback. The draft actions were refined based on AIC input. In May of 2022, there were also key stakeholder meetings. These meetings were held separate from the committee meetings so that partners could review any actions that related directly to their businesses. A meeting was also held with the Whistler Housing Authority, which is not a committee member. And stakeholder input again further refined the draft actions. Next slide. Community input was sought from June 9th until June 30th of 2022. The online engagement platform Engage Whistler was used 
and this platform uses Bang the Table, which many of you are likely aware of. The online engagement incorporated polls to collect demographic data and idea boards to collect feedback and questions on the actions. To make the engagement more accessible, there was also an in-person display at the Whistler Public Library. At the library, there were two idea boards and people could add their feedback with sticky notes. For reference, there were also two binders containing all of the proposed actions, and you can see one of these binders on the table in the photo. One-to-one -one phone interviews were also available for anyone needing assistance with the Engage Whistler platform. A total of 60 participants contributed to the online engagement tool, providing responses to the demographics quick poll, contributing an idea or asking a question. A total of 38 sticky notes were used to contribute ideas at the in-person display. And Appendix E of the Whistler plan provides a summary of the quick poll responses and the received ideas. Next slide, please. After the community engagement period closed, staff refined the draft actions based on public input. The revisions were again reviewed by the AIC and key stakeholders. Where the community proposed significant changes, the revised actions were also reviewed by relevant staff subject matter experts. After the review by the AIC, stakeholders and staff subject matter experts, the project team then refined the actions again for the final time. And in September of 2022, the final plan was presented to and received by Whistler's Council. Next slide. The next three slides speak to the report itself in terms of layout and implementation. The final report has three main sections as shown on this slide. Section one introduces the project, outlines the RMOW's commitment to accessibility, defines relevant terms, and describes the guiding framework. Section two details the project's methodology. And section three presents the actions and implementation strategy. The report also includes six appendices that provide additional information. Next slide. This slide shows the layout of the actions in the plan. It shows an example from the action area of fostering accessible communications and engagement. The actions are grouped by category. For instance, in this example, the categories of accessibility map, feedback on accessibility, and annual reporting. The plan identifies start date targets. It's important to note that this action plan is a comprehensive multi-year plan. And these actions will be pursued as resources permit and as opportunities arise. Wherever possible, the plan acknowledges the actions should be integrated into ongoing municipal functions and in new initiatives. Where applicable, a lead has also been identified as the champion of the action. Most of the leads are municipal departments. But it's also important to note that implementation will require commitment and contributions of a number of community partners. Next slide. Implementation progress will be reviewed by RMOW staff and will be reported on annually to the committee and to council. This in turn will inform Whistler strategic planning and annual budgeting processes. Also, for the requirements of the Accessible BC Act, 
the plan should be reviewed and updated within three years. This will review will include an evaluation of the most recent performance data and an assessment of current opportunities. Next slide. The next two slides and the final slides will speak to lessons staff feel we learned during the development of Whistler's plan. The first is the benefit of using an accessibility professional to lead the development of the plan if possible. For Whistler, it was especially valuable to have the historic knowledge of the accessibility coordinator who had been involved with the accessibility advisory group since 2006 prior to being employed with the municipality in 2009. In particular, the accessibility coordinator's knowledge of which accessibility barriers had successfully been removed and which barriers still existed proved to be quite helpful in developing the preliminary actions. The second is the need to work collaboratively across the organization and to leverage municipal assets. In Whistler's example, senior leadership support was important throughout the project, especially with regard to the commitment of staff resources. It was also important to involve staff from across departments and to follow up with staff at appropriate intervals. Number two also includes building off of the momentum of other activities within the municipality. For example, Whistler had momentum created by the recent completion of an age-friendly action plan and the announcement of the Invictus Games being held in Whistler in 2025. The third is the need to work collaboratively with community organizations. In the Whistler example, local organizations were key players in the development of the plan and they helped to promote the public engagement among their constituents. Local organizations will also be key to the plan's successful implementation as the plan needs dedicated groups to champion many of the actions. Next slide. Number four is about using resources from other jurisdictions if needed. This might be things like online training modules, checklists, or guidelines. In Whistler's example, we incorporated training designed for the implementation of the Accessibility for Ontario, Ontarians with Disabilities Act. These Ontario resources were used as they are currently the best available information. Whistler recognizes that it is operating in a different regulatory framework and should training modules specific to BC be produced, then these training modules would be used in lieu of the ones created for Ontario. The fifth and final lesson is about being proactive in designing an accessible engagement process and producing documents in accessible formats. Depending on what type of in-person engagement is being planned, it's important to consider things like the height of display boards, font sizes, and the need for ASL interpreters or captioning. There are also a number of considerations for online engagement and social media promotion. The format of tools needs to be as simple and as intuitive as possible to recognize the needs and experiences of participants with disabilities. We receive feedback that online tools need to be easy to use for all ages and abilities, and in particular, there should be as few fields or as clicks as possible. We also learn lessons in creating final documents. In terms of document accessibility, it is important to think about screen readers 
and to leave enough time in the project to add things like alt text to document images and tables. If you're planning on including photos and other images in your document, it's important to think in advance if your municipality has enough accessibility images that convey independence. And like other public documents, it's important to use plain and suitable language that everyone can understand. Next slide. And this concludes our presentation. I thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you so much, Courtney, for sharing your example from within your local government. Um, I really want to acknowledge, too, that doing so, I was so surprised when you agreed because it's so short after, so soon after an election. So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, our volunteers, when they share their time um, to share capacity within local government, it's always greatly appreciated. Um, but to do it around now is also an extra an extra gift, so thank you for taking the time. Um, uh, we're almost at two o'clock, so we'll move on to questions. I see there's quite a few questions. Um, what we'll do is we'll alternate between the questions that are in the chat and folks who have hands raised. Um, I'll stop sharing for now. Um, and so a number of the early questions that came in um, and Panelists, please feel free to jump in where you feel it's appropriate to you. Um, and if you don't feel like you can uh, respond, we'll also be making note of the questions and anonymizing them to share them with our panelists to help inform uh, resource development and, and you know, uh, assessment of impact to local governments. Um, but one of the common themes I'm seeing in some of the questions is around um, what to do if you are a very small local government uh, with low capacity, you're in a rural or remote area where your population, I saw um, Mark, I believe, commented when you have a population of 300 or less. Um, and knowing all of these challenges are more significant in terms of capacity and, and uh, remoteness, um, but at the same time still really wanting to uh, meet these uh, regulations, understanding their importance, what are those local governments to do? Well, I can start by answering that and maybe Bryn can jump in. Um, I, I think what I would suggest is it's all about that collaboration and finding, um, bringing together groups so that you aren't overtaxing your own um, resource capacity. So uh, that's where I would start. Um, Bryn? I'd also add, you know, this is one of the reasons why we built a lot of flexibility into the requirements. So, you know, it's really, um, we've designed them so that it should be a living document and it's, it's something that could be iterative and that you build on over time. So your, your first initial plan might not be what your plan looks like 10 years from now. Um, so really, you know, starting small, like Mike said, collaborating with others where possible. Um, and also, you know, you could look at building it into some of the other planning work that your organization is doing as well. Thank you both. Um, we'll hop to Karen, who's got their hand up. Karen, if you'd like to unmute. Hi, thanks. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for their um, important work that they're doing and, and recognize the importance of it and don't want to diminish that. But um, just further to the small community issues, in terms of the actual committee, um, I have a two-part question. One, can 
this um, function be incorporated into an existing committee or another committee? Um, and uh, secondly, could we join um, with other communities and have a committee that you know consists of several communities within the region? Would those meet those two things meet the requirements? Yes, and yes. That's a, that's a great question, Karen. And yes, yeah. As okay. I said, both of those are, are possibilities, um, and we really encourage the collaboration um, element as well, joining with others. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. That's kind of where I was giving that example of the Bulkley Valley, being that where you could have six or what, I can't remember how many communities there, uh, plus their libraries. So you could join together like 12 entities, because you're probably going to ha um, have very similar um, accessibility challenges that you want to take on and that's totally fine and again uh, just to stress that I definitely if you're low in capacity and new to this keep it very simple in the first year it it doesn't need to be um, a grandiose document um, it, it, it needs to be something that's that you have the capacity to actually address um, Chris, perfect timing. I was about to verbalize your question again, but why don't you unmute and um, share your your question? Well, I have a new question now. <laughs> First of all, um, thank you very much to all the presenters. Very, very helpful uh, seminar today. I do have a question. My understanding is that LGMA will be the hub leader for local governments and that the hub leader will work um, with Mike's team to determine resources and services that might be needed by local governments to advance their plans. I'm wondering, moving forward, what the mechanism might be for LGMA to talk to municipalities about the kinds of resources that they most need to assist with planning. Are you able to talk about that at this early stage? I'm so sorry, I can just clarify, LGMA has not yet been appointed as a hub leader, just to clarify. Oh, I'm sorry. I read that in the chat. I, sorry, I, I, I might have miswrote um, that. Sorry, I apologize. Oh, sorry. So maybe if I can just ask a more general question then, Mike. How will the hub leaders work with the different sectors to identify the resources and services that they'll need to advance their plan? Uh, well, I think part of that will depend on how committees are brought together, but I can definitely see us doing almost like a roadshow um, where we can sit down with a smaller groups of, of prescribed organizations to get an idea of what their specific needs are. Thank you. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, Mike. Um, and I'll just hop back to the chat, but encourage folks as well, if there's questions that either you've put in the chat and you want to verbalize or you have new questions, so please put your hands up. Um, just Krista, your earlier question as well, um, folks who are collaborating, collaborating with other local governments, I think I'll reinforce Mike's plug to um, please share either in the chat or to the LGMA or, um, and especially as Mike noted, to, um, to the Disability Alliance of BC, um, so that that information can be uh, noted and, um, and we're, we're happy to highlight those examples of collaboration wherever we can to help uh, other folks know how it's, uh, you know, why reinvent the wheel. Um, 
Another question from Blanca is, uh, how is the funding received and do we have to apply? And that's a great question. I think if I can ask Mike and Brynn will speak to that. I think there's a bit of confusion around, um, yeah. yeah. So the funding has been provided uh, to Disability Alliance BC and is primarily to develop those resources that will serve organizations. So it's not necessarily intended to be direct grants um, uh, to the prescribed organizations themselves. Um, we knew that we were covering a large number, 750 organizations, and we wanted to see where we could find some synergies in developing resources that will cover uh, the different sectors. Mike, do you want to add to that? Um, what are phase one and phase two organizations? I can take that one. Um, so in the regulation itself, uh, it kind of appears as a big long list. Um, and so uh, after each organization, there is a, a date by which um, they're asked to comply. So the phase one organizations have one year and uh, municipalities and regional districts are included in phase one. Um, and then uh, phase two uh, organizations would have two years to comply. Great, thank you. Um, Courtney's asked, do, are there sample terms of references for the stipulated committees to share with local governments? Um, Mike, I know you noted on your slide that there's uh, samples being shared. Um, for folks who, if they have uh, sample terms of references that they'd like to share, um, please do so as well. We can send them back out to participants. Um, anything else you want to add on that, Mike or Bryn? No, just to give, again, I, 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 we, we're trying to use the bcaccessibilityhub.ca as a, a place where you can do all your shopping for accessibility needs. And I've, I have uh, seeded it with, um, some uh, a number of samples of different types of documents uh, terms of reference etc and we will keep on building on that the the other aspect of the uh, what i was, was talking about before in terms of creating a um, a co-design workshop to create one that's a little more um, uh, bc centric based on the accessibility act will be hopefully available uh, in, uh, maybe the end of this year early next year to to also have where you can you don't even have to sort of uh, pry out things because different um, dis uh, different uh, areas have done it very differently, like very prescribed in Ontario and um, somewhat in, in Nova Scotia. So you, it may not fit your, um, what you want, but it, it is, there are those st starting points for you. Great, thank you. And thank you, Courtney, to sharing in the chat as well and for folks for who, um, you know, helping to build capacity. Um, I'll note as well that uh, uh, the uh, workshop you were discussing, Mike, we included uh, information in your reminder email this morning. Um, I want to acknowledge, I know local governments are quite um, stretched at the moment, but I also know that um, it is, uh, there's a lot of passionate folks who like to help the development of resources for within the sector. Um, so there's information if that's something that you'd like to contribute to, um, information in the email that we sent this morning and how to get in touch with Mike and the projected um, workshop dates for that. So um, uh, so feel free to, uh, to 
return to that. Um, thank you to the folks in the chat who've also known. Callouts, we're calling disability serving organizations. If folks struggle to establish a committee, what what can they do? Or if they're having challenges because of some of those barriers, like uh, their location or capacity funding, that type of thing, what would be a next step for them? Or who should they contact? Or yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of those challenges that we're going to probably learn together. Um, how to best serve uh, that um, that challenge. Um, it, it's still a, early on for us as well uh, to understand the, because it's very, there's so many different um, organizations that we're working with that we're still learning from them a, a lot as to uh, how to work with them when we do have those kind of challenges. Uh, hopefully, again, we can the uh, DABC can act as a connector, as well as LGMA, LGMA and, and others to um, see how we can connect with other organizations to uh, reduce that, um, uh, that, that pressure on the organization. And it's always, I think, uh, Bryn would uh, echo this, that it, it's the, you know, we understand that those challenges exist and we know that we're, we're making the best efforts kind of thing. And so that's, uh, that's the, the, the mindset that's going forward with this. It's, um, and we do want to help in, in any way possible. Thanks, Mike. And not to put you on the hot seat, you're being a very gracious presenter with some really tough questions. And, um, you know, I know it's a, a learning process at the same time. Um, I think in my mind, that makes sense where, uh, you know, if I could plug that folks um, reach out to you because in the event, well, my understanding is um, the local government needs to either sit on or establish their own accessibility committee, but they could be on an existing one in their community, correct? If a school or a library has established one, um, they've met their requirements by also sitting on that um, external committee. Can you clarify that? Well, I think, again, it's as long as they, their accessibility challenges are being addressed within that committee so um yeah it, it wouldn't be simply as though as, um purely as a um, participant on our committee and i think that's a good distinction to make where um so i think that if folks are if i can encourage if folks are having some of those challenges but maybe reach out to dabc because you might be able to match make between um know organizations within that community knowing the closest local government might be you know um, 600 kilometers away or something like that I don't, I'm not sure um, yeah um, uh, looking at the questions um, well, there's one that just came up about where the committee might sort of sit within your organization and that's one thing I think is uh, very interesting because it really depends on kind of what your um, sort of vision is of what the committee is going to do. So some might feel as though we really want to work on even just what we're doing internally. So it may be purely internal uh, committee that may grow beyond that. Um, 
other, though that's less so within local government, it's meant more for other organizations. But um, it, again, there's, it, it, you might think, okay, we just need to start with ourselves. And again, but you do obviously need the, the representation from people with disabilities, but it may exist within your organization. Um, I think as a local government, you definitely want to quickly go towards um, reaching out to the public, but it's, um, there is still, again, that, that idea that, well, if we, if we need to take baby steps, that's, and that's what's needed, that's what's the best approach to go. Thanks, Lee. Uh, Molly, if you'd like to unmute. Hi, thank you. Um, I have a question on if we join um, or partner with other municipalities or regional districts within the area and form the accessibility committee through that, are we allowed to also share an accessibility plan? Yep. Yep. It's just, again, it's, it's ensuring that um, if you're sharing a plan, it's taking into consideration so that would be the challenges within each of those municipalities, which may require different action um, steps, but you can definitely come together to create a, a single uh, single plan. Okay, and then we, can, we would be able to share resources as far as like the media um, releases and that kind of thing as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. In fact, I would encourage that again. Um, there's a, I'll hop back and forth between the folks here uh, raising their hands and the questions in the chat. Um, is there an email distribution list for these resources once they're public and on the resource hub? And how can folks make sure they're on it? So, uh, Mike, that would be for you. How can folks get on uh, updates and notices from DABC? Well, right now, I mean, it's, uh, the, the website's available to, to go to our website. I put together, and so we can um, offer developer. But um, right now, I think it's uh, you know, making sure that uh, you check out the site. It's not. I mean, things aren't being updated that frequently. That you. you um, but once we get going, I think that will definitely be the case. And how the the new how it's the new uh, website will look like will probably determine the, you know, the technical way of, of um, updating but we can probably go through um, if you know if there are significant up updates um, I'm hoping I think Candace you and I discussed you know maybe through your newsletter or um, letting people know that way as a, a potential um, process we're very happy to highlight anything that needs to get in front of the local government so that, um, you know, you can only be on so many uh, notification lists and things like that, right? But um, thanks for waiting, Sarah. Do you, do you, would you like to unmute and... Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so I'm an elected official in the village of Tassis, and for the last couple of years we've been on the... I've been chairing the Tassis Age-Friendly Action Committee, which has sort of evolved to change that action because we're mostly just discussing and planning without taking a lot of action. We've changed that uh, to accessibility because uh, some of the committee members, uh, one of them has a son who's disabled. And so it's, it's not really about age friendliness from the top, but um, 
I'm sorry about that. I, uh, I, I can't help that. Um, but, uh, the, you can, though. Um, thanks. Sorry about that. I, this is, my, my spouse is in the fire department and, sorry. Um, so my question, I guess, is, is more about making a plan about accessibility needs like retrofitting uh, doors in the rec center to make it more accessible uh, versus sort of like being able to actually make actions where it's like, oh yeah, you can leave your, your walker in the, the hallway here, have like you know, how some places are having like bike valet parking to make that more accessible and, and more people make act- active transportation options an uh, 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 option. And I, I just sort of feel like um, expanding the committee to do more planning is going to be helpful for future actions, but because we are a small community, we don't really have capacity even to like having committee and setting a terms of reference and adopting the best practices is awesome. But until we're actually going to have the dollars to install a, a button door opener on, a, you know, a, an infrastructure that's, you know, coming to the end of its useful life just seems like, uh, I, I guess maybe that's where I'm coming to where the plan becomes the action you know and so that's I, I'm sorry I know that that was really painful question thanks for your time <laughs> I'll let Bren answer it so. <laughs> thanks, for your, thanks for your question Sarah and I, I appreciate your you know, noting the capacity in small communities and one of the things too is with being able to determine the content of your own um, plan I think is finding where you can set those long-term um, actions of maybe addressing some of the infrastructure, but also maybe in the shorter term, looking at some of those smaller things that your organization can do to get you get you there in the long term. So addressing some of the um, things you can do maybe by policy or um, adapting your your practices as as in your in your business um, and and those kind of things. So focusing on the, the quicker, easier wins in, in the short term, but also setting those long-term goals and, and planning about them in the, in the longer term as well. Yeah, like how long, like sh- the low-hanging fruit gets you to like the higher stages or something. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and I, I noticed Courtney uh, put up her hand. She might have something to add here too. I thought it might be useful just to share that as part of the initial scoping of, of the Whistler project, we, we did consider if we were developing policy or if we were developing actions. And so we did contemplate that we did already have a new official community plan and there was a significant amount of policy language related to accessibility and then whether it made sense to create new policy and how then would that interact with the the official community plan and that's why we crafted our plan as an action plan and then maybe i'll just comment as well as that our action plan has a number of different types of actions so you mentioned things about like infrastructure and retrofitting and things like that but our, our action plan also includes things that perhaps are are easier for some communities to to carry out like just looking at job um, advertisements and whether language should be adjusted in there and maybe having like an employee recognition um, program for um, you know uh, employees that are promoting accessibility within the organization, organization and things like that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And so that's um, like kind of sorry. 
sorry, I'm just going to pause there and ask um, if you'd like to follow up because there's some folks who haven't gotten their question answered yet. So I'm not, I'm going to be a stern, stern chair and not allow for follow up just to try to be equitable here. Um, and we've only got a few minutes left. Um, so the one question that's come up a few times in the chat that I think would be really important to have uh, Bryn's comment on um, around the, the expectation, and thank you, Madeline, for this question, um, is the expectation that the accessibility committees, are they, do they fall under the Community Charter 142 uh, select standing committees that require half the members be councillors, um, or do they not fall with under that my understanding is that they would not fall under that, um, but that is something I will take away and then consult with our colleagues in the Ministry of Municipal Affairs just for a, a confirmation on that, and we can certainly work with Candice to send out uh, a response on that as well. I think that would be really appreciated. Thank you so much, and and thank you, Carrie-Anne, too, for um, there's a few folks who uh, commented and um, around this, but great to have that clarification. Um, We'll do one more question. Are organizations going to get organized into zones or regions so that the hub leader is clearly identified? And Mike, you and I will follow up about that. Um, so I think there's some uh, uh, determination being made around uh, uh, hub leader. Um, Mike's beginning to dig into that work, correct? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And, um, uh, and then, um, uh, just looking further, um, if barriers are identified that are out of scope for the local government or would benefit from a coordinated approach at a higher level, is there a feedback mechanism for this via the hubs or DABC or where should folks go with those concerns? Uh, I think sending me those those concerns is probably the starting point because I'm and I think too, maybe, maybe um, a misunderstanding around what kind of what we mean around the hub. The hub is mainly just the way of, our way of being able to communicate with um, all the prescribed organizations within a sector. They're not responsible for like holding money or anything like that. It's it's a, a communication mechanism. So that's maybe where the um, misunderstanding is. So it's not, yeah, you're not, it's not like a, um, here's a zone of a grouping of municipalities and LGMA is the hub for that. It's that group um, would have a committee um, structure. Uh, LGMA were, and, and um, UBCM, we're trying to coordinate communications through them. And that's kind of how we're seeing the hub. So um, maybe that's just, it's t uh, terminology there, but um, yeah, I think those, those types of questions come through to me and uh, and Bryn, the accessibility director, as uh, you know, based on the type of question. So um, I'm probably the I'm the hub of those kind of questions and able to figure out how to best uh, answer them. Mike and I'll Prescott. pop our email in the chat if you have questions specific to the act or the regulations as well. Our team is happy to answer those. Thank you both so much. And, um, I know we didn't get a chance to go through all the questions, but again, as I noted, we'll um, save these questions and, and I'll share them with uh, Mike and Bryn, um, anonymized of course, um, but to help inform where, hey, where are some of the concerns, where can you know efforts be focused, um, and happy to support continued information getting in front of 
members and um, but really at the end of the day uh, thank you so much folks for being here and for you know for taking the time to help um, answer questions and, and hear concerns as well um, I think it's uh, you know a really important area to clarify and some really important work as well um, I also want to thank the participants for their insightful questions and, and comments and for that you know also common in the local government world of those peer supports um, of offering up examples and templates that's so not not at all uncommon um, before we sign off I'd like to ask folks if they're comfortable in a minute for Misty to take the Brady Bunch style photo as we always like to uh, highlight our, our programs and activities that are happening um, but we'll wait one more sec just in case you don't want to be a part of that you can give you time to sign off um, again as well refer to your email this morning for a copy of today's powerpoint and for additional resources um, and please do feel free to reach out and let us know if, if um, this was helpful or um, how to make sure that this is uh, these town halls are more relevant for you as our members um, okay and with that, for those remaining, I'm assuming you're happy to say cheese. Um, if you'd like to turn your camera on, uh, and then we'll uh, hand things over to our very high-tech photographer, Misty. <laughs> uh, not a professional. However, I know how to press print screen. So if you are ready, if you could please <laughs> smile those lovely smiles, look directly in your camera, and here we go in three, two, one. And I'm going to take one more because this is a great big group and I can't fit everybody on one screen. Sorry, just going to save that one, go to our next screen and three, two, one, smile. Wonderful. Thank you everybody and thank you all for participating. Thank you. Thanks Misty. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much, Mike and, and Bryn. Oh, and bless you.